0: Mountain Town in Morocco is still trying to rescue people from the rubble after the powerful earthquake on Friday. At the same time, it's serving as a hub for aid groups trying to get even more remote places in the Atlas Mountains help. Today is Monday, September 11th, and this is WBUR's All Things Considered. Good afternoon, I'm Lisa Mullins. Many who survived the 9-11 terrorist attacks have had health problems. The CDC in Atlanta is hosting an exhibit that pays tribute to those suffering and shows what public health experts have learned. And 22 years after the attacks, different motivations are drawing Marine recruits into service. New recruits are born years after the attacks. A lot of the recruits that come in today's recruit training, they have no idea. They're like learning everything from step one. There may be some recruits that know about our history. Also our newest unsung hero. It's 401
1: news headlines and the forecast are coming up. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Lakshmi Singh. The country is remembering the 2,996 lives lost 22 years ago today in a coordinated terrorist attack on U.S. soil. The passengers and crew of United Airlines Flight 93 are hailed as heroes for preventing their plane from reaching its intended target and instead crashing in a field near Shanksville, Pennsylvania. The names of those lost were read aloud today.
2: Todd M. Beamer.
1: Similar poignant tributes were being held at the Pentagon where First Lady Jill Biden will soon take part in a wreath-laying ceremony as well as in New York City where NPR's Jasmine garst reports.
3: The ceremony began at 8:25 a.m. with the reading of names of those who were killed at Ground Zero. Gordon M
4: Amath Jr.
5: Adomiro Abad
4: Marie
3: Rose Abad Nearly 3,000 people were killed in the September 11 attacks. Many victims' remains have yet to be identified. In addition, the Friar Department of New York has added 43 new names to the World Trade Center Memorial Wall. First responders who died of illnesses associated with exposure to toxins at Ground Zero. President Joe Biden is expected to deliver remarks in Anchorage, Alaska today, while traveling from Vietnam back to Washington. Jasmine Garst, and Pierre News, New York.
1: Before departing Vietnam, President Biden paid tribute to a friend. At the John McCain Memorial, the president remarked, I miss him. He was a good friend. McCain was held prisoner for more than five years during the Vietnam War. The late Republican Senator from Arizona went on to become one of the most influential figures in u s. politics. The Food and Drug Administration has given the green light to new covid nineteen boosters, NPR's Rob Stein has details.
6: The FDA says the new boosters are safe and effective for anyone six months and older. The shots are updated to target a more recent Omicron subvariant than the first boosters. Even though that strain has been replaced by new Omicron subvariants, the shots appear to be a close enough match to still help protect people. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention will issue recommendations Tuesday for who should get one of the new shots. Some experts say everyone should get one, others say another booster is really only necessary for those at high risk for serious complications from COVID. The shots are expected to become available at drugstores, doctors' offices, and elsewhere this week. Rob Stein, NPR News.
1: U.S. stocks end the day higher. The Dow closed up 87 points down the day at 34,663. S&P was up 29. NASDAQ was up 156 points. This is NPR News.
0: And this is 90.9 WBUR. Good afternoon, I'm Lisa Mullins. Massachusetts is joining the nation in marking the 22nd anniversary of the September 11th attacks with events throughout the day today. This morning, state leaders read the names of people from the state who were killed on 9/11. At an event at the State House, Lieutenant Governor Kim Driscoll addressed the families of those who lost a loved one. It is a deep privilege for Governor Healey and I, along
7: with everyone in our state, to pay tribute to your loved ones today. We thank you for all the ways you have shared their spirit
0: to make the world
8: a better place.
0: 206 people with ties to Massachusetts were killed in the attacks. At 5 o'clock today, the Massachusetts Fallen Heroes Organization will hold a vigil inside the State House to honor the 9 11 victims. Four residents of Berlin, Massachusetts, are being honored for bravery today. Lieutenant Governor Kim Driscoll presented the annual Madeleine Amy Sweeney Award to Brian and Dylan Clemmer, Bobby Wheeler, and Jonathan Goals. The group searched debris for survivors of a residential propane gas explosion in April. They managed to save a woman's life moments before a second explosion killed a 79-year-old woman. The Sweeney Award is named after Amy Sweeney, who was an American Airlines flight attendant from Acton, who conveyed critical information about the 9-11 hijackers on her plane before the plane was crashed into the World Trade Center. Congressman Jim McGovern is blasting the Republican Attorney General of Alabama. Attorney General Steve Marshall submitted a court filing today that argues he has the right to prosecute anyone who makes travel arrangements for someone trying to get an out-of-state abortion, even if the abortion never occurs. McGovern says the Republican goal is to criminalize abortion nationally.
9: Elections do matter, and we see what the Republican plan is. It is not just about overturning Roe versus Wade. It is much, much more than that, uh, and this is an example of what they want to do, and you're going to see other attorney generals in other states try to do the same thing.
0: Alabama has one of the strictest abortion bans in the country. Police and fire personnel in Hopkinton are searching for an 84-year-old man. Jim Noon is a resident of the communities at Golden Pond Assisted Living Facility. He hasn't been seen since about 10 last night. Officials say noon is five seven, and may be confused or disoriented. He was last seen wearing khakis, a windbreaker, and a Red Sox cap. Could get rained on off and on through the afternoon and this evening. Maybe some real downpours at times. So watch out for flooding. Tonight's lows should be in the mid sixties. Tomorrow's highs in the low to mid seventies. A cloud cover once again tomorrow. Some sporadic showers. Should have clouds sticking around through Wednesday. Chance of showers as well. This is WBUR. It's four oh seven
10: we're funded by you our listeners and by subaru featuring the new 2024 subaru crosstrek wilderness with off-road capability and 9.3 inches of ground clearance designed for adventure seekers learn more at subaru.com wilderness this is all things considered from npr news
11: i'm elsa chang in culver city california
8: and i'm mary louise kelly in washington Devastation from the earthquake in Morocco is still being discovered as rescue crews and aid groups make their way through the country's rugged Atlas Mountains. The government says more than 2,800 deaths have been counted so far, thousands more people have been injured. From the city of Marrakech, which was itself badly damaged in the quake, roads are being cleared to try to get help to mountain towns. And this is where we find NPR's Lauren Freyer today, she is up in those mountains in a bad Badly hit town that has now also become a staging area for relief and Lauren it sounds like you're in a place that illustrates what Moroccans as well as outside aid organizations are dealing with set the scene for me what's it like
12: yeah, Mary Louise, I'm in a sort of gateway to these rugged mountains that rescuers are really still trying to penetrate. This has become a hub for, op- for aid operations, but it's also suffered a lot of damage itself. I haven't seen any building in this town that is not damaged, and it ranges from sort of big, wide cracks in a facade to others that are literally now piles of stones with a satellite dish sitting on top and perhaps a child's blanket peeking out from Mm. the rubble just like in Marrakesh people are sleeping outdoors here but here in the mountains it's very cold at night the military the Moroccan military has these dump trucks that are pulling up hundreds of people gather around soldiers toss blankets into the crowd the trucks are also trying to clear boulders from area roads but it is slow going I mean these are some of these are dirt roads anyway the terrain is rugged it kind of looks like Arizona like the Grand Canyon in some places and this is all also where people are streaming down from smaller towns in the mountains looking for help. One man walked up to me in tears, like begging for crews to come to his village where they are running out of food and water. Ah, and as you make your
8: way through those crowds trying to talk to people, what are you hearing from uh, people who are in the town already and those who have come seeking, seeking help?
12: I met an 18-year-old woman in line for those blankets. Her name is Iman Erbin and she took me back to what is left of her house.
13: This is our house. That is the kitchen, you know.
12: And this house next to it is completely gone. Yeah, the
13: neighbors, they died, you know. It's grandmother and uh, two girls. And the one girl, she's pregnant and they, he, she died.
12: These are neighbors who used to come over for dinner, who she grew up next door to. Um, Iman is a college student who was supposed to go back to class today after summer vacation. She's uh, she's not going yet. No, that's just yeah. all so sad. I, I, are, are
8: there still hope of finding survivors? Are people still being pulled out of any wrecked buildings? We're, what, three days after the quake now?
12: We are, 72 hours. Um, There is very much a lot of hope. Um, People are still being pulled out, but rescuers say this is a lot tougher than other quake relief operations. I spoke to a Spanish rescuer who was among the first to land in the scene, and um, he's been here for 48 hours using sniffer dogs, um, trained to look for people alive under the rubble. His name is Antonio Vargas, and for the past two days, he has searched hundreds and hundreds of homes for people alive.
14: No, 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 hemos conseguido localizar a nadie con vida.
12: He blames the building materials here. So when cement and rebar collapses, mm-hmm. there are air pockets in there. And the materials they use here, like red adobe clay, it just becomes dense and there's, there's no air there. And so the hospital here is actually eerily right. quiet. Okay. NPR's Lauren Frayer, way high in the Atlas Mountains
8: of Morocco. Thanks for your reporting today.
12: Thanks for having me. China's
11: real estate and construction sectors are struggling. That's a big deal because together, those two sectors make up at least a third of all of China's economic activity. And other areas of the economy aren't growing fast enough to make up the difference. As NPR's Emily Fang reports, that is leading to fears of economic stagnation.
4: China wants its citizens to spend money, but they're not spending enough money.
15: I think the China economy is totally changed. And people... Uh, spending money habit totally changed.
4: That's Nathan, an upscale Beijing restaurateur. He doesn't want to give his or his restaurant's full name because he worries his business could be penalized for talking to an American news outlet.
15: I really feel that the economy is not as strong as before. People are no confident anymore. It's no money. You know, like, real thing is people don't have money in their hands anymore. I don't know why, but... That's out of the situation right now.
4: And as a result, they're not buying Nathan's wine and having fewer fancy dinners out. People did do a little revenge spending after China lifted its COVID controls at the end of last year. Domestic tourism is also up. But a good 30% of the economy is driven by construction and selling property and land. And the problem is...
16: The problem is that none of the other 70% is growing fast enough to really offset that, that drag.
4: That's Adam Wolf, an economist with the investment research firm Absolute Strategy Research. He's explaining how an anticipated bump in consumer spending never came. And underneath all that, starting in 2021, Chinese regulators began cracking down on the debt financing model that's underpinned the property and construction sectors, upon which so many other sectors are reliant.
16: And so at the heart of the problem is that 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 whole chain is breaking down.
4: A chain of other businesses that assumed that demand for new apartments would continue forever and cities would continue expanding. They're not. And that means Chinese consumers and local governments alike are buying less.
16: And on the consumption side, they're also buying uh, less durable goods, furniture further apartments. Real estate developers are buying less land and, and, and the pace of construction of their projects has slowed down. And because they're buying less land, that means that China's local governments' revenue has also declined, and so local governments are being forced to cut back.
4: New construction by floor area has dropped by as much as 45 percent, and there are big downstream effects. For example, construction is what's propped up China's steel industry accounting for nearly half of global steel production.
17: It is enough to make the industry very depressed, very nervous.
4: That's Tomas Gutierrez, Asia editor at Kalanish Commodities, a research and information firm. He sees steel demand falling and staying that way in the long
17: term. So there'll have to be quite a lot of consolidation in the industry, and that's obviously going to mean forced restructuring or bankruptcies.
4: And there is no other market big enough to soak up China's extra production.
17: There's no effort to go it's going to be quite messy unless it's supremely well managed, which nobody's ever really done before.
4: And so pain in one area is contributing to a vicious cycle overall, falling confidence, depressing prices, and discouraging businesses from investing. Now all hopes are pinned on Chinese consumers to spend more. And China's main policymaking body just announced it's setting up a new bureau focused on supporting private businesses. Nathan, the Beijing restaurateur, says he's an optimist by nature, and he doesn't really have a choice but to keep on going. He opened a second restaurant during the pandemic, and he's trying to keep both afloat.
15: I finally, you know, I borrow money, put in—I I mean, like I put in, you know, almost one million RMB already. Right. I can't raise. Really
4: so far, his investor has been supportive, even as his first restaurant looks a little shaky. But their generosity can only last so long. He says his investor is seeing their business revenues dry up as well. Emily Fang and Pure News, Taipei.
8: It's been 22 years since the terrorist attacks on the World Trade Center, but tens of thousands of people are still sick from exposure to the disaster site. The CDC in Atlanta is now sharing what it has learned about the health effects of 9-11 with the public. From Georgia Public Broadcasting, Ellen Eldridge reports. For months after the attack, responders
18: and survivors breathed in air filled with small pieces of the World Trade Center towers. That dust is now part of the Health Effects of 9-11 exhibit at the CDC Museum in Atlanta. A piece of that dust is magnified in a large photograph.
19: Why is this such an important story to tell 22 years after 9-11?
18: That's Anthony Gardner with the CDC's World Trade Center Health Program. He's giving a tour of the exhibit.
19: Nearly 80,000 people have physical or mental health conditions stemming from their exposures to 9-11-related conditions.
18: Gardner lost his brother Harvey in the 9-11 attack on the Twin Towers. He spent the last two decades advocating for the victims who experienced things such as dust, smoke,
19: debris, and the traumatic events.
18: He says 22 years later, cases of cancer, respiratory illness, and anxiety disorders are still being discovered. Kayla Bergeron was in her office on the 68th floor of the North Tower when the plane hit. For more than an hour, she and others made their way down the survivor's staircase in the dark. She says once they finally made it out, a police officer told them to run.
10: You am know, like, after all this, who wants to run? Now look around, this giant plume of black. Oh my God, I ran 16 blocks to the Highland Tunnel and dove
18: under a car. Bergeron was diagnosed with post-traumatic stress disorder, which is a common mental health effect among survivors. Stories like hers are part of the CDC's exhibit. The collection also shows what health experts have learned over the decades. Lisa Delaney is with the National Institute for Occupational Safety and Health. She was at the CDC on September 11, 2001.
20: We did not have a plan to send people out the door rapidly to conduct immediate sampling of the potential exposures. Now
18: she is leading the CDC's emergency preparedness program. The goal is to make sure first responders are protected from potential health hazards like those discovered in 9-11 survivors.
20: It's always with us when we think about new emergencies, um, for example, the Maui wildfires, and now understanding what they were potentially exposed to and how that might impact their long-term health.
18: The 9-11 health effects exhibition at the CDC Museum is open through April of next year. There's also a digital version available online. For NPR News, I'm Ellen Eldridge in Atlanta.
11: You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News.
0: And thank you for listening to 90.9 WBUR. Coming up in about 20 minutes, Twinkie maker Hostess Brands is getting bought by J.M. Smucker. Hostess has gone through bankruptcy not once but twice in about 20 years. A lifeline for the Twinkie coming up. On Wall Street, stocks rose to start up the week. The Dow gained a quarter of a percent. S&P picked up nearly seven-tenths of a percent. And the Nasdaq grew by more than one-and-a-tenth percent. This is WBUR.
21: We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Kahal Bre Ra, a humanistic Jewish congregation celebrating the high holidays in person and online. For more info and activities, go to visitkb.org. And the Masters in Applied Analytics at Boston College, flexible, rigorous, relevant. Help manage data and insights to shape industry. bc.edu analytics.
2: Turn your old car into new news. Support the programming you love by donating your vehicle to WBUR. Learn how at WBUR.org cars
0: could have a few slow-moving showers and thunderstorms this afternoon and evening. As a result, excessive runoff may cause some flooding, especially in low-lying areas, so be careful out there. Tonight, some showers could be heavy at times. Temperatures about 67 for a low. And then for tomorrow, mostly cloudy again. Some isolated showers not quite as wet as today has been. Temperatures in the mid-70s. This is WBUR.
22: Support for NPR comes from this station. And from BritBox, streaming new and familiar British comedies starring Greg Davis. David Tennant, Ricky Gervais, Chris O'Dowd, and others, available at BritBox.com slash NPR. From IQ, a platform for everyday AI, dedicated to helping teams move beyond the lab to build generative AI applications at enterprise scale, D-A-T-A-I-K-U And from listeners like you who donate to this NPR station,
8: this is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly.
22: And I'm
11: Elsa Chang. A new poll by UC Berkeley finds that most California voters oppose the idea of making cash payments to the descendants of enslaved African Americans. It's a notable finding because the state is in the middle of an effort to pay reparations for slavery to its black residents. Here's NPR's Adrian Florido.
23: California has made more progress than any other state in the push for reparations. A task force created by the legislature recently wrapped two years of public hearings with a report recommending cash and other forms of compensation to state residents who can show their ancestors were enslaved. Lawmakers are now considering whether to pass a bill based on that report a new UC Berkeley poll underlines the political pressure they might face.
24: Just from a public standpoint, it appears to be a, a steep uphill climb to get the uh registered voters on board.
23: Mark DiCamillo directs polling for Berkeley's Institute of Governmental Studies. Of the more than 6,000 California voters he polled, most believed the state's black residents are still affected by the legacy of slavery.
24: But when we uh, pose the issue of cash reparations uh, by a two to one margin, voters are opposed to the idea.
23: African Americans were the only racial group in which a majority supported cash payments. Republicans were almost unanimously against them. Democrats were evenly split.
25: Well, we always knew we'd have an education challenge.
23: Assemblyman Reggie Jones-Sawyer served on the task force that recommended reparations. Its report, he notes, includes more than 1,000 pages of evidence of slavery's ongoing impact on Black Californians, even though California wasn't a slave state.
25: A poll just asked, would you give cash payments without any context to it. Um, But if you do not have a detailed analysis in a way that people can make an intelligent decision, then you sometimes get what you get.
23: JONES-Sawyer is aiming to introduce a reparations bill early next year. He stopped short of saying whether it'll include cash payments, but he says his Black colleagues in the State House are planning a public educational campaign. Tatish Natetta is a political scientist at the University of Massachusetts Amherst who's done national polling on reparations. He says the California survey mirrors national findings almost exactly.
24: This is a relatively unpopular policy, and that's been the case for the history of the United States.
23: Large numbers polled say it's not about the cost. They just don't think African Americans deserve cash payments. That's true even among many progressives, which is why Nateda calls progressive California an important test case.
24: If it does pass, I think it provides the momentum for the reparations movement that it has been looking for for, you know, 200
23: plus years. If cash reparations don't pass, he says, opponents will seize the moment.
24: To make the case that in a state as progressive as California, if you can't pass reparations, the likelihood of this passing at the national level is very low and in many other states um, is, is also very low.
23: Kanza jones Muhammad serves on a committee advising the city of Los Angeles on reparations. Much of her work ahead is focused on educating Americans about slavery's ongoing impact on Black communities. She's planning an oral history and testimonial project.
26: I think we need to really show that these are lived experiences with people who are still alive and make this a human story and not a budgetary story. Because somehow I feel like the human factor gets significantly left out of these discussions and these polls.
23: It's tough work, but important work, she says, if cash reparations are going to have a chance. Adrian Florido, NPR News.
8: President Biden is in Anchorage, Alaska, where he is delivering remarks to service members and their families on this, the 22nd anniversary of the 9-11 attacks. For two decades after that deadly day, U.S. foreign policy largely centered on the Middle East and Afghanistan. Now another country is front and center in American foreign policy. Biden is in Alaska today because he is on his way home from a whirlwind trip to Asia, where, as NPR PR White House correspondent Asma Khalid reports the focus was China.
27: Biden arrived in New Delhi Friday evening, where he was welcomed with an Indian dance performance on the tarmac. As his motorcade sped through the barren streets of this normally crowded city, there was Biden on a giant billboard hugging India's prime minister. It was a scene from the summer when Narendra Modi paid a state visit to Washington. Ever since Biden entered the White House, he has been on a mission to counter China's growing influence and ambitions. And that means courting China's neighbors. And on this trip, his first stop was the prime minister's residence for a private meeting. This White House increasingly sees India as a force to balance China. Kurt Campbell handles the region for Biden's National Security Council.
28: I believe that the most important bilateral relationship in the 21st century for the United States will be with India.
27: The next day, Biden was off to the G20 summit where leaders from major economies were gathering, and his two big proposals were both aimed at creating alternatives to China. He called for scaling up the World Bank, something Biden's team described as an alternative to coercive Chinese lending. He also rolled out ambitious new global infrastructure plans from India to the Middle East onto Europe, as well as a new investment in a big Africa rail project.
5: It's a project that's about, about far from just laying tracks. It's about creating jobs, increasing trade, strengthening supply chains, boosting connectivity.
27: Over the last decade, China has made massive infrastructure investments of its own through its Belt and Road Initiative. (laughs) Biden's next stop was Hanoi. Vietnam is a one-party communist state, and the American president was here to meet with the head of the Communist Party, once deemed an enemy of the United States. Together, the two men announced that Vietnam and the U.S. would upgrade their relationship, putting the U.S. in the highest diplomatic category Vietnam has, one it reserves for only a few other nations, like China.
5: This is a new elevated status that will be a force for prosperity and security one of the most consequential regions in the world.
27: The Vietnamese celebrated this new partnership by inviting Biden to a state lunch complete with Hanoian beef noodle soup and made a toast to Biden's health. This new partnership seeks to improve economic cooperation and in particular boost semiconductor manufacturing. At one of his last stops on the trip, Biden met with tech CEOs and business leaders in Hanoi and spoke about these investments.
5: It's about creating a free and open Indo-Pacific. For all people, for all
27: people. A free and open Indo-Pacific is kind of code language about China, without specifically mentioning China by name. This Vietnam overture is part of a pattern. Biden has strengthened the alliance with the Philippines. He plans to share nuclear submarine technology with Australia. And he recently expanded security cooperation with Japan and South Korea. But in a press conference in Hanoi, Biden insisted he is not trying to isolate China. I don't want
5: to contain China. I just want to make sure we have a relationship with China that is on the up and up, squared away. Everybody knows what it's all about.
27: More than once, he said he's not trying to hurt China. This comes at a time when China's economy is stalling. I, I want
5: to see China succeed economically. but I don't want to see it succeed by the rules.
27: Biden said he hopes to see China's leader, Xi Jinping, sooner rather than later. The two men have not met or spoken over the phone in 10 months. Asma Khalid, NPR News.
0: This is NPR News. And this is 90.9 WBUR. We've got a flood watch in effect until 2 in the morning. Look for showers off and on through the remainder of the afternoon and overnight tonight. Some of the showers should be heavy at times. Temperatures in the mid-60s. Then for tomorrow, gray skies, showers once again. Today's young Marines were born years after the 9-11 attacks and often know relatively little about the attacks. Coming up in about 10 minutes on WBUR, more on how this once vital recruiting tool has faded within the U.S. military. Red Sox play tonight starting a four-game series with the Yankees at Fenway Park. Cutter Crawford gets the start for Boston. Clark Schmidt goes for the Yankees. It's 4.30.
21: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by La Cuchara Cafe in Melrose, offering modern Latin American fare in a new food truck available for catering and events. Online booking at LaCuchara.com, and Boston University Student Employment, connecting you to smart, reliable students for part-time work. Free job listings at BU.edu/SEO. Kids in foster care
24: are already in a tough spot. So why are states taking their Social Security checks? It's not fair to make kids who are orphaned or disabled have to pay for their own foster care. White advocates are pushing states to change how they pay for foster care. That's on the next Morning Edition
8: from NPR News.
29: Listen again tomorrow morning on 90.9 WBUR.
30: Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Windsor Johnston. The nation is marking 22 years since the September 11th terrorist attacks. Thousands of people gathered at Ground Zero in New York City today to remember the victims who died at the World Trade Center. Colleen Dolan traveled from Chicago to take part in the ceremony. I'm kind of just looking up at the sky wondering what it could have possibly felt like sitting here or standing here and seeing that happen in real life. So, kind of surreal. First Lady Jill Biden will lay a wreath at the 9-11 Memorial at the Pentagon at this hour. She'll be joined by the Defense Secretary and other military leaders. A ceremony was also held in western Pennsylvania to honor the 44 passengers and crew who died on United Airlines Flight 93. Robbie Braun from member station WITF in Harrisburg reports, the memorial in Shanksville was designed to educate students that were too young to remember 9-11.
26: When passengers aboard Flight 93 realized what was underway, they fought back, ultimately leading the plane to crash in a field in Shanksville, Pennsylvania. At 10.03 a.m., the time of the crash, each victim's name was read aloud, and bells were rung in their memory. Stephen Clark, superintendent of the Flight 93 Memorial, says it's important to remember their sacrifice.
6: Their actions unquestionably saved untold number of
26: lives and preserved the U.S. Capitol. The ceremony was live-streamed to thousands of classrooms. Park officials say it will help those too young to remember the attack to honor the memory of the lives lost. For NPR News, I'm Robbie Broad in Harrisburg.
30: At the close on Wall Street today, the Dow was up 87 points. This is NPR News.
0: And this is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. The Food and Drug Administration this afternoon has given Cambridge-based Biotech Moderna and New York's Pfizer approval to distribute updated COVID-19 booster shots this fall. The new versions of the shots are available to most Americans, even if they've never been vaccinated against the coronavirus before. The Centers for Disease Control still needs to approve the shots. It is scheduled to meet tomorrow. Volunteers are marking 9-11 with a day of service. More than a thousand people came to the Aganis Arena at Boston University to pack more than 335,000 meals for the Greater Boston Food Bank. The nonprofit's chief operating officer, Cheryl Schondek, says the meals would go to food pantries across the state. The special evidence of today's event is so overwhelming by taking a tragic situation and turning it into a positive light volunteer Lori Howard of North Attleboro says everyone should remember the sacrifices of those who lost their lives on 9-11.
8: I absolutely love this whole service idea for 9-11. Don't give us a holiday where we, you know, make barbecues and all that fun stuff, but I'd rather do this
10: because it's purposeful.
0: The event is one of 18 meal-packing events held across the country for this 9-11 Remembrance Day. Boston Athletic Association has named 160 organizations to be part of next year's Boston Marathon official charity program. They include Boston Children's Hospital, David Ortiz's Children's Fund, and several Boys and Girls Clubs. Athletes running for charity comprise nearly 10% of the total field size. Last year, they raised more than $40 million. The forecast is coming up.
10: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Fidelity Investments, reminding you it's never too early to start saving for your child's future. Learn more
31: about a tax-advantaged 529 college savings account and how you can use the money to pay
0: for qualified expenses at fidelity.com uFund. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC. Member NYSE. SIPC. Ranging from damp to really wet this afternoon and tonight. Some drenching rains at times that could lead to ponding on the roads and some flooding as well. Tonight, sporadic showers, lows about 67. Tomorrow, gray skies, isolated showers, temperatures in the mid-70s once again. It's 435.
22: Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Dementia Society of America, committed to helping support brain health and the millions of Americans experiencing the syndrome known as dementia. Learn more at 1-800-Dementia.org. From Procter & Gamble, maker of Metamucil, a fiber supplement containing psyllium, a plant-based fiber for trapping and removing waste in the digestive system, designed to be taken every day. More at metamucil.com. And from the sustaining members of this NPR station,
8: from NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Mary Louise Kelly in Washington.
11: And I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. Today marks the 22nd anniversary of the September 11th attacks. The day will always be a solemn one. But now that American troops are no longer at war, the terrorist attacks are fading into history. NPR's Tom Bowman traveled to the Marine boot camp at Paris Island, South Carolina, where new recruits were born several years after 9-11.
32: It's still pitch black, and Marine recruits scurry under spotlights, stacking their weapons and packs, all under the constant screams of drill instructors looming over them. Soon they're filing into a cavernous auditorium, a long flowing stream of shaved heads and green t shirts. It's time for a history lesson with oh, Staff Sergeant Mark sir. Anthony Ross. Hey,
5: by show who was born after the September 11 attacks? Yes, hey, most of us, right? Yes, sir. Hey, put your hands down. Aye, sir. Hey, do we know what happened during the 9-11 attacks? Yes, yes sir. we know what happened? Yes, sir. For so the ones that may not know what happened, what was going on was our country was under attack from the terrorists, make sense? Yes, sir. They, they came within our borders and it attacked us from the inside. They end up freaking One of the
32: drill sergeants outside was in kindergarten when 9-11 happened, and Sergeant Ross, he was just eight years old when the towers were hit. For most Americans, 9-11 is now simply a date to mark, much like December 7th with the Pearl Harbor attacks. Even the military war colleges are moving on. The talk is not of 9-11, the subsequent invasion of Afghanistan and lessons learned, but of China and new weapons needed recruits are not signing up to fight like their predecessors who joined in a flurry of anger and patriotism there are more than 200 recruits in this class and sergeant ross asks who wants to go to war only a smattering of hands go up today they're looking for benefits college money or like angel benitez 23 personal improvement
24: i want to develop a warrior ethos a code a way of a way of living more ethics more morals That's why I joined, and because it's difficult. Uh, I go towards the difficult
32: things. For 18-year-old Kendall Miller, it's more a call to service.
24: I love my country. I love the United States. And um, I wanted to do anything I could help. I'm able-bodied. I can help any way I can.
32: 40-year-old Sergeant Major Alkedra Tyler was drawn to the Marines as a high school student for an opportunity to travel and get an education. Then 9-11 happened. Tyler was 18, already signed with the Marines and working as a nursing home aide. She glanced at a TV and saw the towers burning.
11: I I literally thought, oh my God. And then I thought, how many people are in that building?
32: She called her recruiter and asked if she could leave for boot camp sooner.
11: The recruiter was like, are you sure you want to do this? And I said, yes, I want to do this. Did you not see what happened on the news? I want to do this. So he asked me how soon did I want to leave? And I was like, I'll leave tomorrow if you tell me I can leave tomorrow.
32: She ended up with multiple deployments in Iraq and Afghanistan, fixing generators in local villages. A few years later, First Sergeant Brian Deere joined up to fight too, still eager to avenge 9 11.
5: In recruit training, that's all they pitched to us going to war, going to war, going to war, going to war. Well, uh, is, and that, again, that's what 2005, we. Right? And that's what we all wanted. You're definitely going to war. And we're all talking about, I can't wait to go to war. You know, I don't want this to ever happen in my country again. When he
32: worked as a drill sergeant in 2016, there was still an ongoing military mission in
5: Afghanistan. So it was easy. You know, I used to tell my recruits, a good majority of you are going to go. Now I can't use that. Now what we're using are benefits, educational benefits, VA loan. Those are the things that we're using to keep motivating them. They don't, they can't pay for college. So that's why they joined the Marine Corps.
32: Even among these young Marine recruits, a few still feel the tug, the sadness of 9-11, jake mckay 18 says a close family friend died in one of the towers
19: the story is what we heard is that he was helping people evacuate he ran in and was helping people get out into one of the towers yes sir and he was crushed by a support beam, and it broke his legs Hmm. so i feel like it's still a recovery with my family um, there's still pain that comes around but
32: It's kind of fading a bit. It's it's fading.
19: It's becoming more of a remembrance than a a grief.
32: John Michael Vigiano steps into the shade after training on an obstacle course with his fellow recruits. He's drenched in sweat, pulls off his helmet and gloves. September 11th is never far from his thoughts. His father was a New York City police detective that morning and rushed into one of the towers with other cops. He didn't make it out. An uncle also died that day. It's my life and it's something that I think about every year, every day. His mother was also a cop on leave and caring for him. He was just three months old.
16: She said that I saved her life because I kept her out of work and she was focusing on me rather than all the dark things that are going on in the world.
32: At the family home on Long Island, there's a kind of shrine to his dad. There's a portrait in the dining room along with his ID card badge and medals he earned over the years and today even though he's still in training
16: they'll all reach out we just try to stay together as a family whether that be getting lunch or having a barbecue we just sit together and we talk between me and my two brothers and my grandmother
32: Hmm. my mother he says he'll do his time in the marines then head back to new york to become a firefighter like his grandfather tom bowman npr news paris island south carolina
8: The Twinkie is sold. Twinkie maker, Hostess Brands, is getting bought by J.M. Smucker as it spreads its peanut butter and jelly empire. The value of the deal? $5.6 billion. NPR's Alina Selyuk reports.
33: The all-American Twinkie has been giving children a sugar rush for nearly 100 years now. It's Twinkie the King!
17: Howdy, partners! Come on to Hostess Twinkie Town.
33: This year, J.M. Smucker, which sells jellies, Jif peanut butter, and Folgers coffee reportedly had to fight off big rivals like Pepsi and Cheerios maker General Mills to scoop up Hostess brands. And the most remarkable part of the story is that Hostess has gone through bankruptcy not once, but twice in 20 years. In 2004, it blamed the low carb diet trend. In 2012, it blamed its union contracts. The Twinkie production abruptly stopped.
28: There was a run on Tasty Treats as people scrambled to get the last Twinkies off those store shelves.
33: Hostess broke up into bits, and its snacking cakes business was sold to investors for just over $400 million. Twinkies came back, and now, 10 years later, Smucker is buying Hostess for more than 13 times that amount.
34: It's the power of brands. People like their Twinkies. People like their Hostess cupcakes.
33: Josh Sosland is the editor of Milling and Baking News magazine, which has covered Hostess for almost a century, as it made Rolls and Wonder Bread, and in 1930, introduced the Twinkie. Now it also makes Ding Dongs, Ho Ho's, Zingers lately trying to venture out into sugar-free cookies, caffeinated donuts, and Twinkies flavored with pumpkin spice. Its stock price more than doubled in recent years as people spent more on snacks thanks to hearty demand and higher prices. Sales have slipped a bit lately, but Saslan says.
34: Honestly, demand for snack products is pretty resilient and has been for the last 20 years.
33: And he says in the snack gig business that does not see a ton of drama, the hostess turnaround has been impressive with its new price tag, a pretty sweet deal. Alina Salyuk, NPR News.
11: You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is a day of remembrance in the U.S. as we honor those who lost their lives in the 9-11 terrorist attacks. But the U.S. is not the only country that commemorates 9-11. On this date, 50 years ago, a U.S.-backed coup overthrew Chile's democratically elected president. And during the 17-year dictatorship that followed, thousands of people were killed or disappeared. Today, many in Chile will be reflecting on the country's search for justice. NPR's Kerry Kahn reports
35: luis calderon garcia stands among the empty seats in santiago's national stadium he points out a familiar awning in the distance to his wife standing next to him (laughs) that's where you saw me says calderon now 78 and sporting a full white beard his wife nods she too remembers the scene 50 years ago she was pregnant and had come searching for him It was just days after the September 11th coup, and at this huge soccer stadium, thousands were being held here. And worse, says Calderón. They'd strike me with the butts of their rifles during interrogations, kick me, it was brutal. But luckily, they kept asking me about things I knew nothing about, he says. He says back then, he was just a member of the Communist Party, young and with no useful information. After 14 months detained at the stadium and later at a camp in Chile's northern desert, Calderón was released. He and his family fled to Canada. Since the first day after the coup, he says, Chileans have never seen justice, never. For many, what justice has been dispensed has been slow and uneven. Tens of thousands were tortured and more than 3,000 killed, but only about 300 remains have been located and identified. And compared to neighboring Argentina, where even senior military commanders of its dictatorship were convicted, few in Chile have been held accountable. Justice and Human Rights Minister Luis Cordero admits that's regrettable. Has it been sufficient? Probably not, he tells NPR. Has it been advantageous? Definitely not, he adds. But Cordero, who himself had two family members disappeared, says for the first time ever, the state will now lead search efforts for the victims. Chile's leftist president, Gabriel Boric, announced the plan earlier this month. Gaby Rivera, president of the Association of Relatives of the Detained and Disappeared, applauds it. But she urges for more, especially getting information from Chile's reticent military. We have to demand that cases be reopened so that the perpetrators are held accountable, she says. For President Boric, politically that is complicated. His popularity is waning, and as the country faces rising crime and a faltering economy, many are not prioritizing human rights. Victims worry, time is running out to hold aging perpetrators accountable. But Luis Calderón, who was tortured and detained at the soccer stadium, says you can't force people to give up what they know. We can't do to them what they did to us, he says, torture them until they talk. Both he and his wife at the same time say, that would be inhumane. Carrie Kahn, NPR News.
17: You're
8: listening to All Things Considered from NPR News.
0: And thank you for joining us on this Monday afternoon here at 90.9 WBUR. Coming up, the federal government's first major monopoly trial of the big tech era. That story is ahead in about 15 minutes on WBUR. We've got a flood watch in effect until 2 tomorrow morning. There is now a line of storms from about Spencer and Central Mass to Gardner to the west and Pepperell along the New Hampshire border to the north. And south of Boston, there are storms down in Providence to Attleboro, and they are heading northeastward. This is WBUR.
21: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Boston Graduate School of Psychoanalysis. Become a certified psychoanalyst and earn your doctorate in psychoanalysis. Better understand how you can help your patients develop emotionally fulfilling lives. All prior master's degrees qualify for psychoanalytic training. Now accepting applications for spring. BGSP.edu. And SunBug Solar, committed to being a partner in renewable energy, from consultation to installation. Learn how you can build a resilient future at sunbugsolar.com. Better bring a towel if you're heading to Fenway Park tonight and don't
0: want a wet seat. Could have off and on showers through the evening, some heavy rains too. Red Sox are set to start at 7:10 tonight in Game 1 of 4 against the New York Yankees. It's
21: 4:49. WBUR supporters include MathWorks, creators of MATLAB and Simulink software for technical computing and model-based design, accelerating the pace of discovery in engineering and science. MathWorks.com and Live Nation presenting the Outlaw Music Festival with Willie Nelson, Bobby Weir and Wolf Bros featuring the Wolf Pack and more September 16th at the Xfinity Center. Could artificial intelligence replace hundreds of millions of jobs in the not too distant future?
16: The next coming decade could be the best decade that we've seen on Earth, or it could be one of the worst.
8: So
11: how will people be able to make ends meet in a world with fewer jobs? Well, we'll explore whether
8: the rise of AI could be the best argument yet for universal basic income. That's On Point tomorrow at 10 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR News Station. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Elsa Chang. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. President Biden has wrapped up his visit to Hanoi, where he met with top Vietnamese Communist Party officials. The leaders signed a comprehensive strategic agreement. The goal is to increase bilateral trade, which has already been booming. NPR International Affairs correspondent Jackie Northam
29: reports. President Biden's visit to Hanoi elevated diplomatic relations to a new level. But it was trade and investment that dominated conversation. It's a long way from the bitter and protracted war the two countries fought five decades ago. Ted Osius was U.S. ambassador in Vietnam from 2014 to 2017 and is now CEO of the U.S. ASEAN Business Council. He says bilateral trade between the former enemies has steadily grown over the years, reaching $138 billion last year.
17: Think of how far we've come in 30 years from almost zero economic exchange to these major investments in the U.S. economy, that's pretty dramatic. As
29: part of the agreement, both sides pledge to create favorable conditions to further open up markets for goods and services, support trade and economic policy. It calls for greater cooperation in science, technology and digital industries. Jonathan Lichtefeld is a Southeast Asia specialist at the Asia Group in Washington,
23: D.C. There will be strong focus on U.S. support for uh, Vietnam's development of its innovation economy. And that includes things like supporting uh, semiconductor development, um, you know, workforce development, and secure supply chains. There's also a
29: push towards clean energy, including solar panels. Ambassador Osius points to Vinfast, a company producing electric vehicles, which he says is one of the first movers in terms of Vietnamese investment in the U.S.
17: They built a manufacturing plant in North Carolina and they have a headquarters, U.S. headquarters in Los Angeles. They're producing these high-tech good electric vehicles. And they really responded to a call from the United States, which is we want more manufacturing here.
29: But Vietnam still has to straddle between its former enemy and its powerful neighbor, China. Jonathan Stromseth is a Vietnam specialist at the Brookings Institution.
6: But Vietnam's largest trading partner is China, uh, by a pretty good margin, and a whopping one third of Vietnam's imports come from China. And these imports are indispensable to Vietnam's manufacturing supply chain, especially in key sectors like electronics. So um, this gives you know China a lot of leverage.
29: Warming relations between the U.S. and Vietnam come at a time when China is ascending in the region. Lin Yuan is a Singapore-based analyst with Control Risks, a global risk consultancy. She says Vietnam's leadership can handle dealing with China and the U.S. Vietnam also a master in diplomatic balancing. So you can't find any other countries in Southeast Asia that could play between superpowers as good as Vietnam. Despite the agreement, there are still stumbling blocks to a full-fledged relationship between the U.S. and Vietnam. There are opposing political systems, one capitalist, the other communist. There are a lack of labor laws in Vietnam and different regulations, especially around tech, says the Asia group's Lichtefeld.
15: And you know, will Vietnam be following uh, a pathway
23: more like China where things are very locked down um, or are they going to you know, take a pathway
17: that's you know, at least somewhat more cooperative with the private sector?
29: The other issue is trust, says Lin Yuan. The war wasn't all that long ago. Vietnam could never look at the U.S. like other countries. But business is business, and we have to look forward rather than looking back. UN says the U.S. granting Vietnam's request to become a market economy would go a long way to building up trust. The U.S. has noted the request. Jackie Northam, NPR News.
11: Time now for My Unsung Hero, our series from the team at Hidden Brain. My Unsung Hero tells the stories of people whose kindness left a lasting impression on someone else. And today's story comes from Allie Ward. In 2013, Ward's life was falling apart. Her relationship with her partner ended, and her dad was diagnosed with a rare form of cancer. She was also feeling a disconnect between the career she had chosen and the person she wanted to be. So to distract herself, Ward would post pictures to social media of her unconventional obsession. Bugs of all different shapes and sizes. And one day, she got a Facebook message from a friend of a friend named Leela Higgins. Higgins was an entomologist at the Natural History Museum of Los Angeles County. And she had seen Ward's bug pictures and invited her to tour the museum.
36: Leela had no idea what I was going through in my life at that time. I think she probably didn't expect someone jittery and tear-stained to meet her at the back door of this museum, but this is my jam. I have loved bugs since I was a little kid, and I went and was just delighted by it. I got to put on a lab coat. I got to go through some secret doors, some employee-only areas, and I remember she opened up this freezer, like come check this out and then just the freezer opening and it was full of dead bugs dead tarantulas some stick insects i mean all kinds of things that have passed away but they were saving them for the entomology department or just for posterity and i just remember just how excited she was about everything was such a pass for me to get excited about this in her company and really rediscover what excited me in life you know at the end she said you should volunteer here and i remember i mean i was like in between crying jags that day and i was like how could my life get a lot worse i can afford three hours a week so i started volunteering and i just would really light up and it gave me this like sense of purpose it helped me reconnect with my love of science and nature that I'd always had, that I really put on the back burner to chase these career ambitions that were really not that authentic to me and didn't really bring out the best in in who I was. And, you know, Leela Higgins, in one instant, changed my whole life. I think sometimes I shudder when I think about what would have happened if I didn't take her up on that, or what would my life have been like? Who would I be?
11: That day set off a domino effect for Ward. The joy she felt volunteering at the museum prompted her to quit her job and start a successful science podcast called Ologies. Her first guest on the show was none other than Leela Higgins. You can find more stories like this on the My Unsung Hero podcast. And to share the story of your unsung hero, visit myunsunghero.org for instructions on how to send a voice memo.
22: Support for My Unsung Hero comes from Angie dedicated to helping homeowners find skilled pros to get their home projects done well. From everyday repairs to dream remodels, reviews, pricing, and booking are at Angie.com or on the
37: Angie app.
8: Thanks for listening to All Things Considered from NPR News.
22: Support for NPR comes from this station and from PBS with The Bussing Battleground. American Experience tells the story of the bitter struggle to integrate Boston schools after a court mandate, premiering tonight at 9, central on PBS. From Workday, an enterprise management cloud focused on providing organizations with a system to continuously plan for all what-if scenarios. Workday, the finance, HR, and planning system for a changing world. From Procter & Gamble, maker of Nervive Nerve Relief, Nervive is designed to reduce occasional nerve aches, weakness, and discomfort in hands or feet due to aging. Learn more at NerviveHealth.com. And from listeners like you who donate to this NPR station.
0: And this NPR station is 90.9 WBUR. Thanks for joining us. Weather around the region is causing some delays at Logan Airport. As of now, there are delays for 24 departing flights. Three flights have been canceled. Got a flood watch in effect until 2 in the morning. Look for some real downpours at times today and overnight tonight. Watch out for flooding. Tonight's low should be in the mid-60s. Tomorrow, highs in the low to mid-70s with a cloud cover once again. I'm here and now executive
14: producer Carlene Watson, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org.
0: WBUR, Boston's
14: NPR news station.
0: What if Russia and North Korea became tighter friends? Russian experts say Vladimir Putin plans to meet with North Korea's Kim Jong-un about securing weapons and ammunition to help Russia fight Ukraine.
14: The Russians are running out of artillery. They're running out of other things that they need
0: to continue prosecuting this war. It's Monday, September 11th. This is All Things Considered. I'm Lisa Mullins, what North Korea can offer and what it wants in return coming up. Today, the FDA approves booster shots that target a new variant of the virus that causes COVID-19. Other strains are more common, but the data say that vaccines may help against illness and complications. And some student loan borrowers have questions about which repayment plan is right for them, but who's gonna answer the questions?
9: We want better service. We want people to have quicker access to agents on the phone. And the only thing that's really going to solve that is Congress investing more money.
0: These stories and much more coming up. It's 501.
28: Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. First Lady Jill Biden laid a wreath at the Pentagon today, marking the 22nd anniversary of the September 11th terror attacks. 184 people lost their lives that day when American Airlines Flight 77 slammed into the building. NPR's Tom Bowman has more.
32: Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin told the family members it aches to remember that pivotal moment year after year. But those joining the military today, and even some of their officers, have little or no memory of 9-11. One Marine drill instructor at Paris Island, South Carolina, told NPR he was in kindergarten when the attacks happened. And Marine recruit John Michael Vigiano was just three months old. His father was a New York City detective who died after rushing into one of the World Trade Center towers. An uncle also died that day.
16: It's my life, and it's something that I think about every year, every day.
32: Vigiano's mother was also a cop, but on leave caring for him. She told him that saved her life. Tom Bowman, NPR News, Washington.
28: President Biden has wrapped up a five-day diplomatic trip that took him to the G20 in India and to Vietnam. He closed out his trip spotlighting new business deals and partnerships with Vietnam. Biden then delivered remarks this evening during a stopover in Alaska marking the 9-11 anniversary where nearly 3,000 Americans lost their lives. Opponents of Atlanta's controversial Public Safety Training Center say they've collected more than 116,000 signatures to force a referendum on the project they've dubbed Cop City. Member station WABE, Shemaine Cruz, us more.
34: Stop Cop
33: City! Organizers gathered at Atlanta City Hall to deliver the signatures after more than three months of canvassing all over the city. The initial goal was to collect 70,000 signatures, that's 15 percent of Atlanta's registered voters as of the last election. But organizer Mary Hook says the movement saw mass mobilization. We painted
14: this city uh, with our desire and hope that we will be able to see democracy, really uh, direct democracy, really have a way uh, to show up in this city like
33: we haven't seen before. However, legal hurdles remain. City officials say they won't start the verification process until a judge provides guidance. For NPR News, I'm Shemaine Cruz in Atlanta.
28: New inflation data comes out this week. Scott Horsley has more.
25: The Labor Department is set to report the latest consumer price index on Wednesday. Forecasters expected to show that prices in August were up about 3.5 percent from a year ago. Consumer prices in China rose last month in a turnaround from the month before. That's a positive sign for the world's second-largest economy, which has been struggling with weak consumer demand. And J.M. Smucker is buying Hostess brands in a $5.6 billion deal that puts Jif peanut butter and Twinkies in the same corporate. This is NPR.
0: This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. A cybersecurity issue has stalled operations at MGM hotels across the country, including in Massachusetts. MGM Springfield's website is currently down. The company said in a statement that law enforcement agencies and external cybersecurity experts are investigating. It is unclear so far just what the issue is. Massachusetts Fallen Heroes organization is holding a vigil at this hour to honor the more than 2,000 victims of the 9/11 terror attacks. Executive director Dan Magoon says that the event will also honor the more than 300 Massachusetts service members who have died since the attacks.
5: Veterans, Gold Star families. And the general public come together to obviously pay tribute to the ones that we lost on 9/11, and obviously the service members that have died since 9/11. To us, is a special day.
0: The vigil is taking place at the grand staircase inside the Massachusetts State House. Two Harvard students are launching a project to stock every MBTA Red Line station with doses of Narcan. Narcan is the nasal spray that can help people regain consciousness after suffering a drug overdose. The students will provide three boxes of Narcan and instructions on how to use them at every red line station. The students partnered with State Senator John Keenan to secure $95,000 for the project. Workers are busy installing the first of 62 offshore wind turbines for Vineyard Wind. Components arrived at the wind farm last week, but the first turbine won't be complete for some time. Reporter Jeanette Barnes has more. Some smaller turbines
3: in Europe can be installed in about a day. But the first one here will be relatively slow going. That's because workers are double checking safety protocols for the new larger model and because the parts first have to be lifted up from a barge and placed on the installation vessel, says Klaus Muller, CEO of Vineyard Wind.
17: The biggest point here is that this is a huge turbine compared to others, right? And the lifts are pretty weather sensitive because of the, the magnitude of these components.
3: He says the first turbine should be finished within a week or two, depending in part on Hurricane Lee. Vineyard Wind plans to start generating power later this year with however many turbines are ready, he says,
0: possibly five. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Jeanette Barnes. Damp in some areas, some heavy rains in others. Overnight tonight, lows about 67. Tomorrow, gray skies, isolated showers, temperatures in the mid-70s. It's 5.07.
21: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Amgen, a biotechnology company working to fight the world's toughest diseases. In a new era of human health, Amgen is dedicated to accelerating the pace of change to push beyond what's known today.
2: This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Ari Shapiro.
8: And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. Earlier today, a dark green train with yellow trim rolled slowly down a track at the border where Russia, China, and North Korea meet inside one of its 90 or so cars was believed to be the leader of North Korea Kim Jong-un
2: Kim is assumed to be on his way to Russia for a summit with Vladimir Putin his first known trip outside North Korea in more than four years and he's traveling in his preferred mode of transportation a custom-built armored train just as his father and grandfather before him traveled
8: That's the sound of pageantry there, as Kim boarded the train back in 2019 for the journey to Vietnam to meet with then-President Trump.
2: The train is gargantuan. It has conference rooms and bedrooms weighted down by thick, bulletproof siding. It moves at a glacial pace. Its top speed for that 2019 trip was estimated at around 37 miles per hour, and it took two and a half days to arrive in Vietnam.
8: So I will tell you, Ari, I have seen this train, or at least its predecessor. This was a reporting trip to North Korea back in 2018, and they drove us to this vast museum about 70 miles north of Pyongyang. There are thousands of gifts on display that have been given to North Korea's leaders over the years, like a bulletproof car from Joseph Stalin or a crocodile suitcase from Fidel Castro. Hmm. And... A train car that looks very much like the one that is apparently carrying Kim Jong-un today.
2: Uh, I cannot match that story, but I can (laughs) tell you that Kim (laughs) rarely leaves North Korea. And when he does, he rarely flies. His father, Kim Jong-il, was reportedly terrified of being shot out of the sky by one of his enemies.
8: Well, I can tell you that the younger Kim inherited his father's railroad travel habit, also the paranoia and the extreme security measures. There are two other trains that tend to accompany the main one. Uh, One goes ahead checks the tracks, the other behind to carry more security and supplies.
2: This week, the destination for that locomotive entourage is believed to be the Russian city of Vladivostok, where Kim and Putin are expected to meet. So when that train pulls into the station, what is each side hoping to get from the other? To help us answer that question, we're joined by Jean Lee, the former Pyongyang Bureau Chief for the Associated Press, and Angela Stent, Director of the Center for Eurasian, Russian, and East European Studies at Georgetown University. Good to have you both here. Hi. Good to be on the show. This meeting comes with President Putin in a tight spot, the war in ukraine is grinding on and it's unclear who has the upper hand right now so angela let's begin with you what does putin want from kim in this meeting
14: well this is quite a reversal of fortune for russia you know the great superpower is now more or less the supplicant uh, to one of the most isolated countries in the world i think what putin needs immediately uh, from kim jong-un is weapons it's ammunition but i think putin is also elevating uh, North Korea's position and really changing, Russia's changing its policy toward North Korea because of the Ukraine war. And I think uh, Kim is the beneficiary of this.
2: Jean, can you speak to that power shift, that reversal, and the opportunity that it presents for Kim and for North Korea?
31: There isn't often a time when North Korea has something to offer anyone. So this is a perfect moment for Kim Jong-un to step in and say, look, I have something you need for a change north korea was a country that did invest in its confessional weaponry with soviet support for decades so they've got what russia needs and what north korea needs what kim jong-un needs is a platform a stage he is coming out of four years of isolation and so with this visit there are of course those promises that he and putin may make about their partnership but he also gets this chance to send a message to his foes about the role that he can still play as a disruptor. And he'll have this incredibly valuable propaganda that he'll be able to take back home to the North Korean people. Hmm.
2: So it has the potential to change the narrative of North Korea as a purely isolated rogue state. And, and, and this is not the first time the two men have met. In 2019, Kim took a train to Vladivostok and the two countries didn't reach any major agreements then. But, but what do we know about their ongoing relationship since then?
14: So from the Russian point of view, you know, the relationship with North Korea really deteriorated after the collapse of the Soviet Union. But under Putin, gradually the relationship with North Korea has improved. Very recently, you had the Russian defense minister, Sergei Shoigu, going to... North Korea, the first time a Russian defense minister had been there since the collapse of the Soviet Union, touring factories, admiring the munitions, the things that Russia needs to buy, participating in celebrations. So that was already a signal that things were really going to change.
2: Gene, how far-fetched is it to imagine that this meeting could open the door to North Korea becoming part of an alliance that stands counter to NATO? I mean, whether you include Iran, whether you include China, is there a scenario in which North Korea starts to become, if not a full-fledged, at least sort of a, you know, a, a corollary to that alternative uh, grouping of countries?
31: I think one thing that we have to confront is that even though North Korea has been in isolation over the past four years, they have been continuing to expand and build their nuclear program. And that does mean that they play, they're play they going to play a bigger role, despite the fact that it's a poor country, despite that it has very few friends. It has the potential and the power to play a role in changing the
14: global order in terms of proliferation. Paradoxically, the Russia-Ukraine war has given a number of I would say, middle level countries, but also including even a country like North Korea, the opportunity to say, hey, here you have the great powers arrayed against each other, all this competition. We want to use this to kind of assert our importance regionally um, and to have more say in the global order. And, you know, we think about countries like Brazil or India But even a country like North Korea now can be a more important regional player because of this war. And that's why I say Kim Jong-un also wants to insert himself as a disruptor. I
31: mean, the Koreans have always seen themselves as what they say, a shrimp among whales, a tiny country that has always had to fend off these larger neighbors. And North Korea has really embraced this idea that in order to stay relevant, in order to survive, you have to be somewhat of a disruptor. They really embrace that. Unfortunately, we're starting to see how they've managed to use that to their advantage.
2: That's Jean Lee, a former Pyongyang bureau chief at the Associated Press. She hosts a podcast called The Lazarus Heist about North Korea's cyber theft. And Angela Stent is director of the Center for Eurasian, Russian, and East European Studies at Georgetown University. Thank you both so much.
8: Thank you so much. Thank you. (laughs) It may be time to dig out your vaccination card. Today, the Food and Drug Administration, the FDA, signed off on the next generation of COVID-19 vaccines. The agency says the new shots are safe, that they are effective for anyone six months and older. NPR Health correspondent Rob Stein is here. Hey, Rob. Hey, Mary Louise. Okay, tell me more about these new shots.
6: So there are updated versions of the Pfizer-BioNTech and Moderna vaccines. They target a more recent Omicron subvariant than the last booster, and the hope is this will be the first of what will now become an annual COVID shot, you know, like the flu shot, to shore up people's immunity as we head into the winter.
8: Okay, so key key question, how well do they work? You know, they're not an
6: exact match. The strain the new booster's target has been replaced by newer ones, but the latest vaccines look like they're probably close enough of a match to still do a good job. Here's Dr. Ashish Jha, the dean of the Brown School of Public Health, who served as President Biden's COVID
32: coordinator. The data so far suggests that the new COVID vaccine should be really quite effective against even the new emerging variants that we have seen come up in the last few weeks. So I'm actually quite optimistic this new vaccine is going to be protective.
6: And cut the chances of spreading the virus, getting COVID and getting seriously ill.
8: Um, I mentioned the FDA says anyone aged six months or older is eligible for the new shot. Does that mean everyone in that age range should get the new shot?
6: That's a question the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention will answer tomorrow after a committee of outside advisors specifies who should get another shot. It's pretty clear the agency will recommend a shot for anyone who's at high risk of getting really sick from COVID, like, you know, older people, and those who have other health problems. We'll have to see what the CDC says about younger, healthier people, including kids. Some independent experts say the focus should really be on the high-risk people, since most younger, otherwise healthy people are still pretty well protected against severe disease from previous vaccinations and infections. Here's John Moore. He's an immunologist at Wild Cornell Medical College in New York.
8: Protection against serious disease is
28: already quite strong. So an additional booster doesn't add all that much extra protection against disease. So it's less
38: important for healthier people compared to people in frail health.
6: And others say everyone who's eligible should get boosted. Here's Dr. Ja again. For younger, healthy people, I say, you know, look, getting the vaccine will reduce
32: your risk of being out of school or being out of work for a while. It reduces how much you transmit it. There are a lot of good reasons to get your annual COVID shot. I understand that you know, it's been a long pandemic and people want to move on. The best way to move on is just to get your annual COVID shot
2: and know that that's going to provide a good amount of protection.
6: But, you know, Marilise, we'll have to see how many people will want another shot. Only 17% of those eligible for the last one got one.
8: Okay, I am going to get another shot. That's my plan. When is it going to be available?
6: Yeah, the shot should start to become available this week, pretty quickly after the CDC recommendation. For most people, their insurance will pay for it. And some experts say you should get one at least two or three months after your last shot or infection. Others say it's best to wait a little longer, like, you know, four to six months. You could also wait to time your shot to a couple of weeks before you're going to do something risky, like traveling for work or the holidays. But that would mean, you know, risking catching the virus before then. I talked about this with Dr. Robert Watson. At the University of California San Francisco.
9: To me, some of this gets to be like amateurs trying to time the stock market, which usually goes badly. And you know, Mary Louise, all the numbers are on the rise again right now.
8: And PR health correspondent Rob Stein. Thank you, Rob.
6: You bet, Mary Louise.
0: You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. And thank you for listening to 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. Coming up in about 20 minutes, the nation's housing shortage and natural disasters are causing an overflow of pets being brought to animal shelters. Pet surrenders coming up in about 20 minutes. We're funded by
10: you, our listeners, and by Office of the Massachusetts State Treasurer.
0: Check to see if you have unclaimed property at findmassmoney.gov. Stocks rose to start up the week. The Dow gained about a quarter of a percent. S&P picked up nearly seven-tenths of a percent, and the NASDAQ grew by more than one and a tenth percent. Cambridge-based Moderna will pay a German biotechnology company as much as $1.8 billion as part of a multi-year collaboration. Moderna and Ematics NV will work together to develop cancer therapies using messenger RNA and other technologies. Moderna will pay the company $120 million up front deal could be worth an additional $1.7 billion if certain benchmarks are met. The forecast is coming up.
10: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Xfinity Internet with the Xfinity 10G network so everyone at home can be online even at peak hours. Xfinity from Comcast. The future starts now. And Stanhope Framers Back Bay in Somerville, celebrating 51 years of museum-quality custom frames for individuals, artists, and businesses. Stanhopeframers.com.
31: Turn your old vehicle into new news. Support the programs you love by donating your car or boat to WBUR. Details at WBUR.org
0: cars. Could have some real downpours this afternoon, so watch out for flooding. Tonight's lows should be in the mid-60s. Tomorrow's highs in the low to mid-70s with the cloud cover once again. Some sporadic showers. Could have more clouds coming around for Wednesday. Chance of showers once again. This is WBUR. It's 520.
22: Support for NPR comes from the station. And from Bank of America, offering access to resources and digital tools designed to help local to global companies make moves for their businesses. Learn more at bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness. From Procter & Gamble, maker of Align Probiotic, a daily supplement designed by gastroenterologists to help relieve occasional bloating, gas, and abdominal discomfort. More at alignprobiotics.com. And from listeners like you, who donate to this NPR station.
8: This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly.
22: And I'm Elsa
11: Chang. Recent manhunts for escape prisoners in D.C., the U.K., and Pennsylvania all raise the question of how easy it is to disappear into the sea of humanity and what are the tools available to officials who have to find these people. Well, back in 2015, Brent Davison helped in the search for two inmates who escaped a corrections facility in the state of New York. He is now a major for the New York State Police and joins us now. Welcome. Thank you. So can you start us off, Major Davison, by telling us briefly about this manhunt back in 2015? I remember it transfixed the country. The prisoners escaped through a tunnel in the Clinton Correctional Facility. It took police something like 20 days to locate them. What did your agency learn from that manhunt that you think investigators in Pennsylvania can take away right now?
34: Well, certainly the cooperation from all the responding agencies played a big part in us um, apprehending inmates, uh, Richard, Matt, and David Sweat back in 2015. Mm -hmm. Obviously, if the inmates get out into the rural environment, as we dealt with up here in New York State, it can be very difficult in locating them. Um, we use canines and special response teams to search for them, and it was still very difficult in tracking their location.
11: Can you talk more about that? Like, what kind of coordination happens once an escape is reported? What agencies get involved once an official manhunt is activated? Can you tell us about the protocol?
34: Yes, it becomes an all-hands-on-deck approach. Pretty much all federal, state, and local agencies respond to the area A leads desk is set up and it becomes a massive search operation involving pretty much any of those agencies that you can think of that are federal, state and local.
11: Mm -hmm. All hands on deck. Well, in the manhunt in Pennsylvania now where they're looking for a convicted murderer, the search, I know it's been hindered by the heat sometimes. Weather is just one obstacle. What other obstacles tend to get in the way of something, a search of this scale? Can you talk about that?
34: Yes, some obstacles that we dealt with up in our area were just the rural area that the inmates escaped into. We had no cell phone coverage in most of the area. Even our radios, police radios worked in a spotty manner. You know, very rural, uh, acres and acres of woods with no houses. Uh, The inmates were able to access seasonal camps and hide out in there for days. Um, They got access to weapons, drugs, alcohol, clothing, which assisted them in prolonging their escape.
11: When an escape happens where the fugitive has been convicted of a violent crime, obviously there's a lot of concern for the public safety. What is your advice for how people in the local community should think about news of escapes like this? How should they be behaving? How should they assess the risk to themselves?
34: Yes, obviously, that was probably our biggest concern was the safety of the public during our manhunt. We always want the community to be very vigilant. Maybe if they don't normally lock their doors to keep their doors locked and report any suspicious sightings, sounds or activity that they're not used to seeing to the police immediately. Probably not do a lot of traveling on their own, if possible. And, you know, just remain vigilant.
11: Yeah, Brent Davison is Troop B Commander for the New York State Police. Thank you so much for giving us your time today.
34: You're welcome.
8: Inside a courtroom here in Washington, D.C., a major showdown gets underway tomorrow. It's between Google and the Justice Department, and it is the federal government's first major monopoly trial of our current era of big tech. Joining me now is Rebecca Haw Allensworth. She's a professor of antitrust law at Vanderbilt Law School. Professor Allensworth, welcome. Thank you. Hello. Hi. Briefly explain what this case centers on, what, what Google is alleged to have done.
3: This is a monopolization case uh, where the government is saying that Google is big, it's dominant, it's really the only one for search in part because it has exclusive dealing contracts with various distributors, including Mozilla and Apple that make it the default and that that default essentially makes it impossible for other search engines to compete.
8: Although I'm guessing Google would argue, look, you can change the default if you want. You do have options.
3: Yes, one of their defenses is competition is just a click away. So if you want to reconfigure your phone, not that I know how to do this, uh, to have a different search engine in there, then, you know, you can do that.
8: I mean, I was reading that Google enjoys something like 90% of the search engine market in the U.S. and comparable numbers worldwide. It is kind of hard to argue, no, that they don't enjoy a monopoly? That's right. And one of the most interesting things about this case to me is that they have not argued
3: that they don't have a monopoly. So almost all monopolization cases the alleged monopolist is going to challenge that and they're going to try to draw the market in a way that makes them, you know, either a small fish in a big pond or, you know, worst case scenario, a big fish in a big pond. But Google has not done that, and I think that's just because they kind of feel like they
8: can't. Right. That's not going to be their strongest argument. I I mean, I was trying to think of precedent for a trial of this scale, and it appears you would have to go back to the 1990s, specifically to 1998 and the antitrust case that the Justice Department brought against Microsoft. What feels the same? What feels quite different now, a quarter of a century later? That case
3: is really kind of a blueprint for this case. If you read the government's complaint in the Google case, it almost reads as if they've taken the complaint in the Microsoft case and just replaced each reference to Microsoft with Google. I think that they're trying to invoke that on purpose because of course that's a case that the Justice Department won. That case was about a monopolist using that monopoly to kind of bully the distributors into making their product the default. And in the case of Microsoft, that was in order to stop a product called Netscape, which we've now, you know, has gone by the wayside, um, because Netscape posed a threat to Microsoft's monopoly. It's a little bit different in that it's not a case about leverage. So the Microsoft case was about Microsoft using its monopoly on operating systems and leveraging it into Uh, into browsers. The Google case is just about search. So that's one sense in which it's a little bit different, but they're quite similar cases.
8: What what are the stakes here for Google? You know, on the
3: one hand, it's a high stakes case because this is obviously very high profile. This is the first major antitrust trial for monopolization since the Microsoft case um at the same time it's not clear to me that if google loses that they will therefore lose their monopoly at least not anytime soon there's a lot of other reasons besides these exclusive dealing contracts that google is so dominant and even if these exclusive dealing contracts are a big piece of that puzzle it's almost too late to really undo the harm that they've done google has become synonymous with search in our minds, but a finding that they're unlawful and they need to go away won't necessarily immediately change that.
8: Rebecca Haw Allensworth, she's a professor of antitrust
22: law at Vanderbilt Law School. Thank you. Thank you. Support for All Tech Considered comes from Data IQ, a platform for everyday AI dedicated to helping teams move beyond the lab to build generative AI applications at enterprise scale. D-A-T-A-I-K-U And from Amgen, a biotechnology company working to fight the world's toughest diseases. In a new era of human health, Amgen is dedicated to accelerating the pace of change to push beyond what's known today.
0: This is NPR News. You're listening to 90.9 WBUR. Weather around the region is causing some delays and cancellations at Logan Airport, so check with your airline before you head out today. Got a flood watch in effect until two tomorrow morning. Rain is now trained on areas from Athol and Gardner to Lemonster and up to Nashua, New Hampshire. It's also raining from Pawtucket to North Attleboro. A recent study has found one billion people between the ages of 12 and 34 at risk for hearing-induced noise, uh, noise noise-causing hearing loss. That story is coming up.
21: We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Salem State University School of Graduate Studies. Join classmates with varied professional and educational backgrounds. SalemState.edu slash graduate. And La Cuchara Cafe in Melrose, modern Latin American fare. Drop off lunch service for celebrating Spanish Heritage Month in Greater Boston. LaCuchara.com.
30: Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Windsor Johnston. President Biden is marking the 22nd anniversary of the September 11th terrorist attacks. Speaking at a military base in Anchorage, Alaska, Biden shared a memory of the day after two hijacked commercial airliners brought down the Twin Towers.
5: I remember standing there the next day and looking at the building. I felt like I was looking through the gates of hell. It looks so devastating because the way you could, the way from where you could stand.
30: First Lady Jill Biden is joining military leaders to honor those who died when a plane crashed into the Pentagon on 9-11. A ceremony was also held in southwestern Pennsylvania to remember the 44 passengers and crew who died when United Airlines Flight 93 crashed into a field in Shanksville. Today is the first September 11th that public school students in Florida will be required to learn the history of that day. Danielle Pryor from member station WMFE has more. Under a new state law, middle and high school students at public schools must receive at least 45 minutes of instruction on the history and significance of September 11th. Social studies teachers must cover not only what happened on the day, but the heroism of first responders and civilians, the outpouring of humanitarian, charitable and volunteer aid that followed, and the historical context of terrorism. Districts are encouraged to utilize age-appropriate teaching resources aligned with these new requirements, along with the history of 9-11, Florida law requires students learn about Black history, Asian American history, and the Holocaust before they can graduate. For NPR News, I'm Danielle Pryor in Orlando. Stocks on Wall Street traded higher today. The Dow was up 87 points. The
0: Nasdaq up 156. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. Massachusetts is marking the 22nd anniversary of the September 11th attacks with events throughout the day today. This morning, state leaders read the names of local people who were killed on this day in 2001. Lieutenant Governor Kim Driscoll addressed the families of those who lost loved ones. It is a deep privilege for
7: Governor Healey and I, along with everyone in our state, to pay tribute to your loved ones today. We thank you. For all the ways
8: you have shared their spirit to make the world a better place,
0: 206 people with ties to Massachusetts were killed in the attacks. Next hour, the Massachusetts Fallen Heroes Organization will hold a vigil inside the state house to honor the 9/11 victims. Four residents of Berlin, Massachusetts, are being honored with uh, for bravery at uh, uh, today. Governor Kim, Lieutenant Governor Kim Driscoll, that is, presented the annual Madeline Amy Sweeney Award to Brian and Dylan Clemmer, Bobby Wheeler, and Jonathan Goals. The group searched debris for survivors of a residential propane gas explosion in April. They managed to save a woman's life moments before a second explosion killed a 79-year-old woman. The Sweeney Award is named after Amy Sweeney. She was an American Airlines flight attendant from Acton who conveyed critical information about the 9-11 hijackers on her plane before it was crashed into the World Trade Center. National Park Service of Boston will begin a 30 billion million dollar renovation of the Dorchester Heights monument this week. Dorchester Heights is the site of the first American victory during the Revolutionary War. It is 534.
10: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by CitySide Subaru, introducing the all-new, all-electric Subaru Solterra on Route 60 in Belmont and at CitySideSubaru.com. Love is now electric. And Lauren Holleran with Gibson Sotheby's International Realty in Cambridge, real estate brokerage that is grounded in data and committed to thoughtful design. LaurenHolleran.com.
0: Bring a towel if you're headed to Fenway Park tonight and don't want a wet seat. Game time for the Sox and Yankees is 7:10 tonight. Could have off and on showers through the evening, some heavy rains too, temperatures in the mid-60s. For tomorrow and Wednesday, cloudy with off and on showers, temperatures in the mid to upper 70s. This is WBUR, it's 535.
22: Support for NPR comes from this station, and from Easy Cater, committed to helping companies find food for meetings and team lunches, with catering menus from restaurants nationwide, online ordering, and 24-7 live support. EasyCater.com From Organic Valley, a farmer-owned cooperative dedicated to providing ethically sourced food from small organic family farms across the country. Learn more at ov.coop slash ethically sourced. And from the Doris Duke Foundation,
8: This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly in Washington. And
11: I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. Each September, the United Nations General Assembly convenes, and one of the items on the agenda this year is addressing the UN's so-called sustainable development goals. There are 17 such goals, including ending hunger, ending poverty, and promoting gender equality. This year marks the halfway point between 2015, when the U.N. member states adopted the goals, and 2030, when they are supposed to actually meet them. But things are moving slowly. Even U.N. Secretary General Antonio Guterres admitted earlier this year that the world's nations are, quote, far off track from achieving them. One of the people keeping an eye on that progress is Mandeep Tivana. He's in New York and is attending the General Assembly as the U.N. representative for the civic engagement organization, Civicus. Welcome to All Things Considered.
39: My pleasure to be here.
11: Well, I want to start out if you could just give us a brief description of what these 17 goals are.
39: So the 17 sustainable development goals include promises on women's empowerment, education for girls, but also on peace, justice, and strong institutions, promises to tackle corruption, as well as to create more sustainable environments around the world.
11: All right, so we're talking about a wide-ranging and ambitious set of goals. I want to focus specifically on ending hunger because a recent UN report estimates that 735 million people faced hunger last year, and that number has gone up since 2019. So the problem's clearly getting worse. Let me ask you, how much do you think the war in Ukraine has affected progress on this front?
39: So hunger remains a huge global challenge. And the war in Ukraine definitely has created a greater crisis on hunger because Ukraine produces a lot of the world's food grains. Mm -hmm. It's also pushed up the prices of food and fuel around the world. So even if food is available, people don't have the money to buy their food.
11: Right, well, if this war ever does come to some sort of resolution, how much hope do you have that real progress will be made on alleviating hunger throughout the world?
39: I do believe that we can make progress. But for that, we're going to need leadership that is willing to call out dictators. It's leadership that is willing to challenge authoritarianism and leadership that is willing to lead by example and be bold and courageous.
11: Well, on that topic of authoritarianism, since the U.S. withdrew from Afghanistan two years ago, the Taliban has banned girls from going to secondary school and severely limited the jobs available to women. So, one of these other big sustainable development goals is gender equality. How does a country like Afghanistan move towards gender equality with the Taliban in
39: power? I mean, can it? The story of Afghanistan is actually a really tragic story of a terrorist regime basically controlling the government and seeking to act as a political actor that is somehow legitimate. So the international community has a lot more work to do here to ensure that there's the conditions in the country where people's aspirations can be met, where the seeds of democracy, of people's voices to be heard, can be planted. As long as the Taliban is in power in that country, in Afghanistan, there's going to be very little progress.
11: I need to ask, are there any bright spots for you? Are there any of these 17 goals that you think the world could actually achieve by this 2030 deadline?
39: Well, there are bright spots, so more people are connected nowadays together. Digital economies are flourishing around the world. And through Internet connectivity, people can demand their rights, which I see as a bright spot.
11: Well, during this U.N. General Assembly session, what will you personally be watching for to get a sense of how committed countries are to pushing forward on these sustainable development
39: goals? Unfortunately, at the moment, in several countries around the world, we have dictatorial systems where people don't have an opportunity to, to demand their rights, and that leads to huge levels of inequality, that leads to networks of patronage and corruption. So what we are hoping is that the UN's leadership will rise to the occasion, use their powers of moral persuasion to push forward a path that is more democratic, that is more equitable for the rest of the world.
11: Mandeep Tivana. He is the UN representative for the nonprofit civic engagement organization Civicus. Thank you so much, Mandeep.
39: Thank you.
8: Millions of Americans are getting ready to start repaying their federal student loans again next month after payments were put on hold during the depths of the pandemic. Many, though, have questions about which repayment plan is right for them and how to get back on track. Early signs suggest the companies that the government pays to answer those questions are struggling as borrowers flood their phone lines, NPR's Cory Turner reports.
13: The Consumer Financial Protection Bureau and its director, Rohit Chopra, are watching loan servicers closely collecting data on how much time borrowers spend on hold and how many simply give up before they even get through. What you're hearing is what we're seeing as well. And what I'm hearing, I told Chopra, is a lot of frustration from borrowers like this.
5: My name is Steve Kalki and I live in Houston, Texas. Why
28: does it take so long for my loan servicer to respond or to approve my documents or to really get any answers
9: back to me in a timely manner.
13: Rohit Chopra at the CFPB says not only are borrowers having to wait for answers. We're seeing that many borrowers are struggling to even get through to their servicers. The problem is in normal times, these servicers have to help a few million borrowers a year move into repayment. But right now, they need to help 30 to 40 million and do it with less money than usual because Congress froze the Education Department's funding. So instead of ramping up, the department is telling its servicers to scale back.
9: The department has indicated because of budget cuts, there's gonna be a need to reduce weekend and uh, evening call center hours.
13: Scott Buchanan heads the Student Loan Servicing Alliance, a trade group for these loan servicers, and says these cuts are putting them in an impossible position. Just imagine, he says, in your job,
9: being told your workload is about to increase exponentially. And then your boss comes in and says, oh, we fired four people. Um, because we don't have the money to pay for them, and then says, but keep up the same level of service, <laughs> that's gonna be a problem for any business.
13: And for borrowers, which is why Rohit Chopra at the watchdog CFPB has this warning for servicers. Budget cuts are never a rationale for breaking the law. And by that he means giving borrowers incomplete or inaccurate information, even if it's by accident. Chopra says too often right now, the call center workers who do pick up the phone to answer borrower questions are brand new and they don't understand the system. I think when it comes to telling borrowers the truth or making sure they're adhering to all the consumer protection laws we have on the books at the federal and state level, you know, not getting paid enough is not going to be an excuse. Scott Buchanan says servicers are doing the best they can right now.
9: You can beat us up if you want to, but it's not actually going to solve the issue. Everyone needs to agree. We want better service. We want people to have quicker access to agents on the phone. And the only thing that's really going to solve that is Congress investing more money.
13: Until that happens, Buchanan says, servicers will keep doing the best they can, while Rohit Chopra warns that may not be nearly good enough. Corey Turner, NPR News.
11: You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. The U.S. housing shortage affects millions of people across the country, and it also affects their pets. This year, animal shelters have seen more people
37: surrendering their pets due to housing instability.
11: Grace Benninghoff reports
37: Spuds is a 60 pound pit bull who loves to lean into the front seat at the drive thru and beg for an extra fry. Marty and Mary Buckles in Tucson, Arizona, have been caring for him for three years.
8: Are you ready for your treats? (laughs) Buds
37: is attached to his family. Most days, he naps with Mary. He and Marty do matching Halloween costumes every year. The three of them live in a 600-square-foot apartment, and it's starting to feel too small. Recently, they decided to move out but they haven't been able to find a place in their budget that will take spuds. They've come up against breed restrictions, weight limits, landlords not allowing dogs at all, and exorbitant pet fees. It's starting to seem like it might be impossible to find a new home so long as spuds is with them.
33: If we don't have spuds, we can find a place we can afford. Whose life do we save? Do we take care of ourselves or do we sacrifice
37: our well-being, our financial well-being, to make sure that he's not in a shelter situation. While there's no centralized database tracking the reason for pet surrenders, I spoke to more than 30 animal shelters nationwide for this story. And every one of them reported a record number of surrenders this year due to housing, ranging anywhere from a 50% to 300% increase over last year. At the Chittenden County Humane Society in Vermont, things are tight. Shelter director Joyce Cameron says they can't take in animals that need to be surrendered right away.
31: We have waiting lists for intakes that are far longer than we would like. They're right now about a month out. So you can imagine when someone's made that hard decision, they have to wait a month. And some of them are in very unstable situations.
37: On top of the existing housing crisis, this summer has brought natural disasters. Montpelier, Vermont's capital, was at the center of a flood earlier this summer that left the entire town underwater. Lori Garrison is with the Central Vermont Humane Society, which is in the flood zone. Flooding took out a lot of low-income and moderate-income housing, and we have people coming to us who are living in
11: their cars. They are sleeping on somebody's couch with no end in sight. So it's not like we can give them a bag of food or or even funds to keep their animal. They just can't.
37: Resources like what Lori mentioned, food and money, can help people hang on to their pets sometimes. In Chittenden County, the Good Neighbor program offers temporary help to animals while their humans get back on their feet. They call us,
31: we take their animals for up to two weeks, sometimes more, and we just love on them, take really great care of them. And those folks come back when they're
37: uh, more stable and they get their animals back. Unfortunately, short-term help isn't going to be enough for the Buckleses to keep spuds. They need a long-term, affordable place to live big enough for the three of them. They still have a few months until their lease ends, but the shelter Spuds was originally at is now euthanizing for space. We took in Spuds
33: and promised that we would help him, and that means not giving up when it's tough.
37: They're considering moving out of Arizona to find cheaper housing that will allow Spuds, or they're hoping to place him with a good family in Tucson before the end of the year. He's listed for adoption with a rescue group in Southern Arizona. For NPR News, I'm Grace Benninghoff.
8: It's All Things Considered from NPR News.
0: Coming up on WBUR is All Things Considered. That electric vehicle you're driving is a complicating factor in tense auto worker contract talks, but not for the reasons you might think. We'll explain tomorrow morning on the WBUR app and on your car radio at 90.9 WBUR. Listen every day. It's 548.
32: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the ICA. Explore waterfront views and new work by leading Boston artists. ICABoston.org. And Direct Tire and Auto Service. Proud to support WBUR and public radio to help keep quality programming alive. DirectTire.com
0: a few slow-moving showers and thunderstorms in the area this evening. As a result, there may be excessive runoff causing flooding in low-lying areas. Be careful if you're out there, especially if you're driving. Tonight, some showers heavy at times, temperatures around 67 for a low. Tomorrow should be mostly cloudy once again. Some isolated showers, not quite as wet as today has been, temperatures in the mid-70s. And then Wednesday could come close to 80 degrees with some thunderstorms during the day. This is 90.9 WBUR. It's 549.
21: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Semester Off, integrating wellness, mental health, and academia in a compassionate and structured setting where college-age students and high school grads can form friendships, experience deep personal growth, and boost their confidence. Fall semester starts September 18th. SemesterOff.com. Kids in foster care are
24: already in a tough spot. So why are states taking their Social Security checks?
38: It's not fair to make kids who are orphaned or disabled have to pay for their own foster care. White advocates
24: are pushing states to change how they pay for foster care. That's on the next Morning Edition from NPR News.
29: Listen again tomorrow morning on 90.9 Warm.
8: This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly.
11: And I'm Elsa
8: Chang. Over the past decade, Nicaragua
11: has become one of the most authoritarian countries in the Western Hemisphere. And for more than a year now, the country has also kept foreign journalists out. But NPR's Aitor Peralta managed to get in, and he's on the line with us now to share a bit of his exclusive on-the-ground reporting. Hey, Ader. Hey, Elsa. So tell us a little bit about what you saw and heard there.
38: So what I really wanted to do was get a sense of everyday life. Uh, and what I found is that on the surface, everything points to normal. Hmm. Shops are open, they're stocked, uh, people go about their daily lives. But once you dig just a little bit, you find that this is a country that lives in fear. Hmm. And everyone is afraid of the ghosts of what this government has done. Uh, and this government has thrown a Catholic bishop in jail. They've thrown revolutionary heroes in jail, they've exiled Nicaragua's greatest poets and writers, and they've shut down a historic newspaper. And in 2018, they also opened fire on protesters. And all of this has just created this unshakable sense of uncertainty. And what people in the country told me is that they're constantly thinking, if the government can do this to the untouchables, imagine what they can do to me.
11: Well, how freely were you able to move around and and report?
38: We were able to move around freely. We were not able to report freely. I had to keep a low profile. I had to be careful with uh, the people I interviewed, and I couldn't just show up to a market to ask questions. So I had to find creative ways of getting some truth. Uh, I went to a comedy club, for example. (laughs) And, you know, I'll tell you, this guy got on stage. He looked nervous. It was his first time on stage. Uh, His hands were a little shaky. And he asks, how's everybody doing? And the crowd, of course, says, great (laughs) and what he's saying is you freaking liars no one lives great in nicaragua and the audience is sort of stunned Uh, there's awkward laughs and then the comedian backs down he says okay okay i'll stop this is dangerous i want to get back home safely it was a joke but not a joke and what it tells you is that. Nicaragua has become a place where even comedians have to watch their words.
11: Yeah. Wow, that's fascinating. Well, Ida, I know that you were born in Nicaragua. Uh, When was the last time you were there and what was it like
38: being back? So the last time I was there was 10 years ago. And there were murmurs that President Ortega was building an authoritarian state, but I still talked politics with poets and writers in cafes out in the open. I felt free, um, but this time it was different. All the poets and writers I spoke to the last time have left. Uh, They're among the 600,000 Nicaraguans who have left the country in the past few years. And, you know, I I went to a couple of government celebrations, and I also traveled a lot of the country. And the feeling that I got is that the government is in complete control of Nicaragua. And this is a country that is also polarized. The vice president, for example, calls her foes snakes and treacherous vipers. Uh, They play songs that taunt the protesters. And the exiles, uh, the opposition that Has been banished they don't want anything to do with the government um i talked to felix maradiaga for example and he's the most prominent opposition leader outside nicaragua he's exiled in miami and i asked him if there was any chance of a political solution with daniel ortega and this is what he told me
39: it's impossible daniel ortega only understands the language of violence
38: the president of nicaragua he says only understands the language of violence That is NPR's
11: Ada Peralta, who was reporting from Managua, Nicaragua. Thank you so much, Ada.
38: Thank you, Elsa.
11: And you can catch more of Ada's reporting from Nicaragua on NPR's Up First
8: podcast. There are some public health messages that most people seem to have absorbed, things like buckle your seatbelt or brush your teeth twice a day. But it takes time for messages like those to sink in.
30: When I was young, we used to bake in the sun with baby oil. And now none of us even, you know, little children wouldn't think about going out in the sun without some type of sunscreen.
8: That is Barbara Kelly, executive director of the Hearing Loss Association of America. Her question, why don't we think about protecting our ears in the same way? Life Kits' Margaret Serino has more.
26: Noise induced hearing loss happens when you have constant repeated exposure to sounds that are at a dangerous level. And it's on the rise for all age groups. A recent study found that one billion
30: young people are at risk for noise-induced hearing loss.
26: That's people between the ages of 12 and 34. This kind of hearing loss is irreversible, but also often preventable. And it might not happen how you expect.
7: So we have tiny hair cells that respond to different frequencies. And over time, those hair cells become damaged.
26: Meaning they don't transmit sounds to your brain as well. That's Dr. Ariella Naeem. She's a senior audiologist at Audio Help Hearing Center. She says that since it's about your brain as much as it's about your ears, noise-induced hearing loss can take a few different forms. Like, if you can't hear your conversation with someone over lots of other people talking in the background. Or if you can hear someone talking, but you can't understand the words they're saying. Another common symptom is tinnitus, which is ringing, buzzing, or hissing in the ears. Both Kelly and Dr. Naeem say, if you have any of these symptoms, first get a hearing test to establish your baseline level of hearing. You should be doing that even if you don't have symptoms. You can ask your physician if they can refer you to an ENT doctor or make an appointment with an audiologist. But also, make sure you protect the hearing you already have.
7: The rule of thumb is that when you're listening to a sound at what's considered 85 decibels, you are safe.
26: Until you hit the eight-hour mark, that is, according to the American Speech Language Hearing Association.
7: But when you increase that sound by five decibels, you have to cut the time in half.
26: City traffic can be around 85 decibels, but an approaching subway train is 100 decibels, And hearing loss is possible after only 15 minutes of that noise. So if you're going to be somewhere loud, like a concert, wear earplugs. And make sure you're watching your phone volume as well. There's no official guidance on how loud is too loud, but this is what Dr. Naeem told me.
7: As long as you play your music or podcast, audiobook, anything like that, at 60% of the volume bar or less, you would be safe.
26: Lastly, be careful about cleaning your ears because it turns out you don't actually have to.
7: Our ears naturally produce oils that help keep it healthy and moist. And Mm. when you stick a Q-tip in there, you're actually stripping those oils that are naturally produced. uh, And then that could lead to dry and itchy ears.
26: With these tips, you're well on your way to building a solid ear care regimen. We tend not to think about our ears in the same way we think about protecting our skin or brushing our teeth, but ears deserve some love and attention, too.
30: Hearing health is a part of overall health. It's about staying connected. It's about interacting with people, and it's about better
8: hearing, better thinking, better engagement.
26: For NPR News, I'm Margaret Serino.
8: And for more life hacks and tips, you can go to npr.org slash life You're listening to All Things Considered.
22: Support for NPR comes from this station and from 20th Century Studios presenting A Haunting in Venice. From the world of Agatha Christie comes a supernatural thriller. Rated PG-13, only in theaters Friday. From Dataiku, a platform for everyday AI, dedicated to helping teams move beyond the lab to build generative AI applications at enterprise scale. Dataiku.com. From Fisher Investments, Fisher Investments team of specialists tailor portfolios to each client's long-term goals. Learn more at fisherinvestments.com. Investments in securities involve the risk of loss. And from ECMC Foundation at ecmcfoundation.org.
0: This is 90.9 WBUR. The Red Sox began a four-game series with the Yankees tonight at a soggy Fenway Park. Cutter Crawford gets the start for Boston. Clark Schmidt goes up for the Yankees. First pitch is set for seven ten. Listen to WBUR anywhere you venture. Download or update the WBUR app now and just tap To listen live.
37: For the perfect spot to host your next event, discover CitySpace, WBUR's hidden gem on Commonwealth Avenue. Whether for a gala, board meeting, or wedding, CitySpace is the ideal setting for unforgettable occasions in a gorgeous state of the art venue. We'll help make your vision a reality more at WBUR.org slash rentals.
2: I'm executive producer of podcasts Ben Brock Johnson and this is 90.9 WBUR FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA Tisbury and 89.1 WBUH Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.
0: It's been three days since the devastating earthquake in Morocco and getting aids to part of the sprawling Atlas Mountains remains a challenge.
29: The government is pouring all its
1: efforts in, but of course, we're in a hugely mountainous area. That makes it very difficult.
0: It's Monday, September 11th, and this is WBUR's All Things Considered. The search for survivors coming up. China's post-pandemic recovery fell short of the mark by a lot. Consumers are spending less. Their lack of confidence in their future in China is feeding a cycle of stagnation. A new poll finds a majority of voters in California oppose cash payments to the descendants of enslaved African-Americans. And many who survived the 9-11 terrorist attacks have health problems. The CDC in Atlanta is paying tribute to those who are still suffering and showing what public health experts have learned since 2001. It's 6.01. News headlines are next.
28: Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. Bells tolled at Ground Zero today and there were solemn tributes across the country as Americans marked the 22nd anniversary of the 9-11 terror attacks. Four hijacked flights that ended in carnage at the World Trade Center, the Pentagon and in a rural farm field in Pennsylvania claimed the lives of nearly 3,000 people. President Biden returning from the G20 summit in India marked the anniversary with service members and their families in Alaska.
5: Shanksville, Pennsylvania, the Pentagon in Virginia. I spent many 9-11s in those hollowed grounds to bear witness and remember those we lost. Every day, but especially the last few days, their memory has been with me.
28: Vice President Kamala Harris joined the ceremony at the World Trade Center today. First Lady Joe Biden took part in a ceremony at the Pentagon. The Kremlin is confirming President Vladimir Putin will host North Korean leader Kim Jong-un in Russia's Far East this week. As NPR's Michelle Kalman explains, the U.S. government says Putin is begging for weapons.
10: The U.S. sees the visit by North Korea's Kim Jong-un as a sign that Russia is having trouble sustaining its military effort in Ukraine. State Department spokesman Matthew Miller says Putin launched the war with the dream of restoring the Russian Empire, and he's failing
16: now a year and a half later not only has he failed to achieve his goals on the battlefield but you see him traveling across his own country hat in hand to beg kim jong-un for military assistance
10: miller says that any transfer of weapons from north korea to russia would violate multiple u.n security council resolutions he says the u.s will be watching closely michelle kelleman npr news the state department
28: since january 1st of this year the u.s has suffered 23 weather disasters that cost at least a billion dollars of damage each NPR's Rebecca Herschel reports that smashes the previous record.
8: In 2020, there were 22 disasters that caused at least $1 billion of damage each. In the first eight months of this year, there have already been 23 such disasters, according to the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. That includes multiple hailstorms in the center of the country, two tornado outbreaks, Hurricane Idalia in Florida, and flooding in California from atmospheric rivers earlier this year. It also includes more than a dozen thunderstorms. Climate change is causing extreme weather to get more common, including more intense storms and heavier rain. The population density in places that flood or are prone to storms is also increasing, which leads to bigger losses. Rebecca Hersher, NPR
28: News. An inmate who escaped from a Pennsylvania prison 11 days ago remains at large. A state police spokesperson saying officers are pre-authorized to use deadly force if 34-year-old Danielo Suiza Cavalcanti does not surrender. On Wall Street, stocks gain ground. The Dow is up 87 points. This is NPR.
0: This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. Good evening. I'm Lisa Mullins. In Massachusetts, volunteers are marking 9-11 with a day of service. More than 1,000 people came to the Aganis Arena at Boston University to pack more than 335,000 meals for the Greater Boston Food Bank. The food bank's chief operating officer is Cheryl Schondek.
1: The special evidence of today's event is so overwhelming by taking a tragic situation and turning it into a positive
0: light. Lori Howard of North Attleboro says volunteering is a fitting way to remember the sacrifices of those who lost their lives on 9-11. I
8: absolutely love this whole service idea for 9-11. Don't give us a holiday where we, you know, make barbecues and all that fun stuff but I'd rather do this because it's purposeful.
0: The event is one of 18 meal packing events held across the country for this day. The State Department of Transportation has a new leader. Monica tibbetts Nut was sworn in this afternoon as acting transportation secretary. She'll serve in that capacity while a search for a permanent head gets underway. Previous Secretary Gina Fiandaca announced two weeks ago that she'd be stepping down She'll serve as an advisor to the Massachusetts Department of Transportation through the end of the year. Voters in Boston head to the polls tomorrow for the city's preliminary election. District Councilors Kendra Lara, Tanya Fernandez-Anderson, and Ricardo Arroyo are all facing challengers. The Dorchester District, formerly held by Frank Baker, is also up for grabs. Polls in Boston open at 7 tomorrow morning and will close at 8 p.m. Massachusetts residents with ties to Morocco are looking to help victims of the deadly earthquake there. Fatia Abnunal is the founder of MT Dead, which is based in Chelsea, the foundation. Her group provides financial aid to people who need it, including in areas such as Turkey and Syria. They're also sending money to people impacted by the earthquake. She says this hits close to home.
35: But when it comes to your own people, it's really depressing, especially elderly people, children, women, pregnant women that are in zones that you cannot even reach up to this moment.
0: We don't know if they are stuck, if they ate or they did not. It's, it's really hard to see. As so of now more than 2,000 people have been killed by the quake in Morocco. Thousands more are injured. Boston Athletic Association has named 160 organizations to be part of next year's Boston Marathon official charity program. They include Boston Children's Hospital, David Ortiz's Children's Fund, and several Boys and Girls Clubs. Athletes running for charity make up nearly 10% of the total field size. Last year, they raised more than $40 million in the forecast ranging from really wet tonight to just kind of damp. Drenching rain at times could lead to some ponding on the roads and flooding as well. Tonight, sporadic showers about 67 degrees. Tomorrow, gray skies, isolated showers, highs in the mid 70s, 71
10: degrees in Boston at 607. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Carla Itzkovich, whose gift in memory of Moises Itzkovich, founder of the Moises Itzkovich Foundation, helps provide public radio news and information to communities around the world.
11: This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California.
8: And I'm Mary Louise Kelly in Washington. Devastation from the earthquake in Morocco is still being discovered as rescue crews and aid groups make their way through the country's rugged Atlas Mountains. The government says some 3,000 deaths have been counted so far. Thousands more people have been injured. From the city of Marrakech, which was itself badly damaged in the quake, roads are being cleared to try to get help to mountain towns. And this is where we find NPR's Lauren Freyer today. She is up in those mountains in a badly hit town that has now also become a staging area for relief. And Lauren, it sounds like you're in a place that illustrates what Moroccans as well as outside aid organizations are dealing with. Set the scene for me. What's
12: it like? Yeah, Mary Louise, I'm in a sort of gateway to these rugged mountains that rescuers are really still trying to penetrate. This has become a hub for, op- for aid operations, but it's also suffered a lot of damage itself. I haven't seen any building in this town that is not damaged. And it ranges from sort of big, wide cracks in a facade to others that are literally now piles of stones with a satellite dish sitting on top and perhaps a child's blanket peeking out from Mm. the rubble just like in Marrakesh people are sleeping outdoors here but here in the mountains it's very cold at night the military the Moroccan military has these dump trucks that are pulling up hundreds of people gather around soldiers toss blankets into the crowd the trucks are also trying to clear boulders from area roads but it is slow going I mean these are some of these are dirt roads anyway the terrain is rugged it kind of looks like Arizona like the Grand Canyon in some places and this is also where people are streaming down from smaller towns in the mountains looking for help. One man walked up to me in tears, like begging for crews to come to his village where they are running out of food and water. Ah, and as you make your way through those crowds trying to talk to people, what are you hearing from uh,
8: people who are in the town already and those who have come seeking seeking help?
12: I met an 18-year-old woman in line for those blankets. Her name is Iman Erbin, and she took me back to what is left of her house. This is our house.
13: That kitchen. is the kitchen, you know.
12: And this house next to it is completely gone. Yeah, the
13: neighbors, they died, you know. It's grandmother and uh, two girls. And the one girl, she's pregnant and they, he, she died.
12: These are neighbors who used to come over for dinner, she grew up next door to. Um, Iman is a college student He was supposed to go back to class today after summer vacation. She's, uh, she's not going yet. No, that's just
8: yeah. all so sad. I, I, are, are there still hope of finding survivors? Are people still being pulled out of any wrecked buildings? We're, what, three days after the quake now?
12: We are, 72 hours. Um, There is very much a lot of hope. Um, People are still being pulled out, but rescuers say this is a lot tougher than other quake relief operations. I spoke to a Spanish rescuer who was among the first to land in the scene, and um, he's been here for 48 hours using sniffer dogs, um, trained to look for people alive under the rubble. His name is Antonio Vargas, and for the past two days, he has searched hundreds and hundreds of homes for people alive.
14: No, no, no hemos conseguido localizar
12: a nadie con vida. Eh, los collapsos... And he says he has not found even one person. He blames the building materials here. So when cement and rebar collapses, mm-hmm. there are air pockets in there. And the materials they use here, like red adobe clay, it just becomes dense and there's, there's no air there. And so the hospital here is actually eerily right. quiet. Okay. NPR's
8: Lauren Freyer, way high in the Atlas Mountains of Morocco. Thanks for your reporting today.
12: Thanks for having me.
11: China's real estate and construction sectors are struggling. That's a big deal because together, those two sectors make up at least a third of all of China's economic activity. And other areas of the economy aren't growing fast enough to make up the difference. As NPR's Emily Fang reports, that is leading to fears of economic stagnation.
4: China wants its citizens to spend money, but they're not spending enough money.
15: I think the China economy is totally changed. And people... Uh, spending-money habits totally changed.
4: That's Nathan, an upscale Beijing restaurateur. He doesn't want to give his or his restaurant's full name because he worries his business could be penalized for talking to an American news outlet.
15: I really feel that the economy is not as strong as before. People, it's no confident anymore. It's no money. You know, like, real thing is people don't have money in their hands anymore. I don't know why, but... That's the situation right now.
4: And as a result, they're not buying Nathan's wine and having fewer fancy dinners out. People did do a little revenge spending after China lifted its COVID controls at the end of last year. Domestic tourism is also up. But a good 30% of the economy is driven by construction and selling property and land. And the problem is...
16: The problem is that none of the other 70% is growing fast enough to really offset that, that drag.
4: That's Adam Wolf, an economist with the investment research firm Absolute Strategy Research. He's explaining how an anticipated bump in consumer spending never came. And underneath all that, starting in 2021, Chinese regulators began cracking down on the debt financing model that's underpinned the property and construction sectors, upon which so many other sectors are reliant.
16: And so the, the at the heart of the problem is that that, that whole chain is breaking down
4: a chain of other businesses that assumed that demand for new apartments would continue forever and cities would continue expanding. They're not. And that means Chinese consumers and local governments alike are buying less.
16: And on the consumption side, they're also buying uh, less durable goods, furniture for their apartments. Real estate developers are buying less land and and, and the pace of construction of their projects has slowed down. And because they're buying less land, that means that China's local governments' revenue has also declined. And so local governments are being forced to cut back.
4: New construction by floor area has dropped by as much as 45 percent. And there are big downstream effects. For example, construction is what's propped up China's steel industry. Accounting for nearly half of global steel production.
17: It is enough to make the industry very depressed, very nervous.
4: That's Tomas Gutierrez, Asia editor at Calanish Commodities, a research and information firm. He sees steel demand falling and staying that way in the long term.
17: So there'll have to be quite a lot of consolidation in the industry, and that's obviously gonna mean forced restructuring or bankruptcies.
4: And there is no other market big enough to soak up China's extra production.
17: There's no effort to go it's going to be quite messy unless it's supremely well-managed, which nobody's ever really done before.
4: And so pain in one area is contributing to a vicious cycle overall, falling confidence, depressing prices, and discouraging businesses from investing. Now all hopes are pinned on Chinese consumers to spend more. And China's main policymaking body just announced it's setting up a new bureau focused on supporting private businesses. Nathan, the Beijing restaurateur, says he's an optimist by nature, and he doesn't really have a choice but to keep on going. He opened a second restaurant during the pandemic, and he's trying to keep both afloat.
15: I finally, you know, I borrow money, put it in. I, I mean, like I put a you know, almost one million. Let me be all right, I can't raise really just
4: so far, his investor has been supportive, even as his first restaurant looks a little shaky, but their generosity can only last so long. He says his investor is seeing their business revenues dry up as well. Emily Fang and Pure News, Taipei.
8: It's been 22 years since the terrorist attacks on the World Trade Center. But tens of thousands of people are still sick from exposure to the disaster site. The CDC in Atlanta is now sharing what it has learned about the health effects of 9-11 with the public. From Georgia Public Broadcasting, Ellen Eldridge reports. For months after the attack, responders and survivors breathed in
18: air filled with small pieces of the World Trade Center towers. That dust is now part of the Health Effects of 9-11 exhibit at the CDC Museum in Atlanta. A piece of that dust is magnified in a large photograph.
19: Why is this such an important story to tell 22 years after 9-11?
18: That's Anthony Gardner with the CDC's World Trade Center Health Program. He's giving a tour of the exhibit.
19: Nearly 80,000 people have physical or mental health conditions stemming from their exposures to 9-11-related Conditions.
18: Gardner lost his brother Harvey in the 9-11 attack on the Twin Towers. He spent the last two decades advocating for the victims who experienced things
19: such as dust, smoke, debris, and the traumatic events.
18: He says 22 years later, cases of cancer, respiratory illness, and anxiety disorders are still being discovered. Kayla Bergeron was in her office on the 68th floor of the North Tower when the plane hit. For more than an hour, she and others made their way down the survivor's staircase in the dark. She says once they finally made it out, a police officer told them to run.
10: You am know, like, after all this, who wants to run? Now look around, this giant plume of black. Oh my God, I ran 16 blocks to the Highland Tunnel and dove under a car. Bergeron
18: was diagnosed with post-traumatic stress disorder, which is a common mental health effect among survivors. Stories like hers are part of the CDC's exhibit. The collection also shows what health experts have learned over the decades. Lisa Delaney is with the National Institute for Occupational Safety and Health. She was at the CDC on September 11, 2001.
20: We did not have a plan to send people out the door rapidly to conduct immediate sampling of the potential exposures. Now she
18: is leading the CDC's emergency preparedness program. The goal is to make sure first responders are protected from potential health hazards like those discovered in 9-11 survivors.
20: It's always with us when we think about new emergencies, um, for example, the Maui wildfires, and now understanding what they were potentially exposed to and how that might impact their long-term health. The
18: 9-11 health effects exhibition at the CDC museum is open through April of next year. There's also a digital version available online. For NPR News, I'm Ellen Eldridge in Atlanta.
11: You're listening
0: to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. About 150,000 auto workers could go on strike later this week, and by one estimate, a 10-day strike could cost the economy $5 billion. Coming up on Marketplace at 6.30, which states would take the brunt of the hit?
32: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Lauren Holleran with Gibson Sotheby's International Realty in Cambridge, real estate brokerage that is grounded in data and committed to thoughtful design. LaurenHolleran.com.
0: Stocks rose to start up the week. The Dow gained about a quarter of a percent. S&P picked up nearly seven-tenths of a percent, and the Nasdaq grew by more than one-and-a-tenth percent. Berkeley College of Music has announced it's teaming up with Spelman College in Atlanta for student exchange programs. They say the mission is to increase the participation of African-American women in jazz. Spelman is a private, historically black women's liberal arts college. Its collaboration with Berkeley will begin this fall. The forecast is coming up. Funding for WBUR's Business Report comes from Vertex, where cell and genetic therapies teams are using innovation to create and deliver transformative therapies for people living with serious diseases. Learn more about how you can make your
31: mark and shape the future at Vertex. Career opportunities at vrtx.com.
2: Turn your old vehicle into new news. Support the programs you love by donating your car or boat to WBUR. Details at WBUR.org cars.
0: Some showers this evening could have some real downpours at times, so watch out for flooding. Tonight's lows should be in the mid-60s. Tomorrow's highs in the low to mid-70s. A cloud cover once again with some sporadic showers. We should have clouds stick around through Wednesday. Chance of showers and thunderstorms Wednesday as well. 71 degrees in Boston at 621.
21: WBUR supporters include Boston Graduate School of Psychoanalysis. Earn your doctorate in psychoanalysis. Better understand your clients, build your clinical skills, and advance your career in this psychoanalytic training program. Master's graduates from all disciplines welcome to apply. Now accepting applications for spring. Learn more at bgsp.edu. This
8: is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly.
11: And I'm Elsa Chang. A new poll by UC Berkeley finds that most California voters oppose the idea of making cash payments to the descendants of enslaved African Americans. It's a notable finding because the state is in the middle of an effort to pay reparations for slavery to its black residents. Here's NPR's Adrian Florido.
23: California has made more progress than any other state in the push for reparations. A task force created by the legislature recently wrapped two years of public hearings with a report recommending cash and other forms of compensation to state residents who can show their ancestors were enslaved. Lawmakers are now considering whether to pass a bill based on that report. But a new UC Berkeley poll underlines the political pressure they might face.
24: Just from a public standpoint, it appears to be a, a steep uphill climb to get the uh registered voters on
23: board. Mark DiCamillo directs polling for Berkeley's Institute of Governmental Studies. Of the more than 6,000 California voters he polled, most believed the state's black residents are still affected by the legacy of slavery.
24: But when we uh, pose the issue of cash reparations uh, by a two to one margin, voters are opposed to the idea.
23: African-Americans were the only racial group in which a majority supported cash payments. Republicans were almost unanimously against them. Democrats were
25: evenly split. Well, we always knew we'd have an education challenge. Assemblyman Reggie
23: Jones-Sawyer served on the task force that recommended reparations. Its report, he notes, includes more than 1,000 pages of evidence of slavery's ongoing impact on black Californians, even though California wasn't a slave state.
25: A poll just asked, would you give cash payments without any context to it. Um, But if you do not have a detailed analysis in a way that people can make an intelligent decision, then you sometimes get what you get.
23: JONES-Sawyer is aiming to introduce a reparations bill early next year. He stopped short of saying whether it'll include cash payments, but he says his Black colleagues in the State House are planning a public educational campaign. Tatish Nateta is a political scientist at the University of Massachusetts Amherst who's done national polling on reparations. He says the California survey mirrors national findings almost exactly.
24: This is a relatively unpopular policy, and that's been the case for the history of the United States.
23: Large numbers polled say it's not about the cost. They just don't think African Americans deserve cash payments. That's true even among many progressives, which is why Nateda calls progressive California an important test case.
24: If it does pass, I think it provides the momentum for the reparations movement that it has been looking for for, you know, 200-plus years.
23: If cash reparations don't pass, he says, opponents will seize the moment.
24: To make the case that in a state as progressive as California, if you can't pass reparations, the likelihood of this passing at the national level is very low and in many other states um, is, is also very low.
23: Kanza Jones-Muhammad serves on a committee advising the city of Los Angeles on reparations. Much of her work ahead is focused on educating Americans about slavery's ongoing impact on Black communities. She's planning an oral history and testimonial project.
26: I think we need to really show that these are lived experiences with people who are still alive and make this a human story and not a budgetary story. Because somehow I feel like the human factor gets significantly left out of
8: these discussions and these polls.
23: It's tough work, but important work, she says, if cash reparations are going to have a chance. Adrian Florido, NPR News.
8: President Biden is in Anchorage, Alaska, where he is delivering remarks to service members and their families on this, the 22nd anniversary of the 9-11 attacks. For two decades after that deadly day, U.S. foreign policy largely centered on the Middle East and Afghanistan. Now another country is front and center in American foreign policy. Biden is in Alaska today because he is on his way home from a whirlwind trip to Asia, where, as NPR. Our White House correspondent Asma Khalid reports the focus was China.
27: Biden arrived in New Delhi Friday evening, where he was welcomed with an Indian dance performance on the tarmac. As his motorcade sped through the barren streets of this normally crowded city, there was Biden on a giant billboard hugging India's prime minister. It was a scene from the summer when Narendra Modi paid a state visit to Washington. Washington. Ever since Biden entered the White House, he has been on a mission to counter China's growing influence and ambitions. And that means courting China's neighbors. And on this trip, his first stop was the prime minister's residence for a private meeting. This White House increasingly sees India as a force to balance China. Kurt Campbell handles the region for Biden's National Security Council.
28: I believe that the most important bilateral relationship in the 21st century for the United States will be with India.
27: The next day, Biden was off to the G20 summit, where leaders from major economies were gathering, and his two big proposals were both aimed at creating alternatives to China. He called for scaling up the World Bank, something Biden's team described as an alternative to coercive Chinese lending. He also rolled out ambitious new global infrastructure plans from India to the Middle East onto Europe, as well as a new investment in a big Africa rail project.
5: It's a project that's about, about far from just laying tracks. It's about creating jobs, increasing trade, strengthening supply chains, boosting connectivity.
27: Over the last decade, China has made massive infrastructure investments of its own through its Belt and Road Initiative. (laughs) Biden's next stop was Hanoi. Vietnam is a one-party communist state, and the American president was here to meet with the head of the Communist Party, once deemed an enemy of the United States together, the two men announced that Vietnam and the U.S. would upgrade their relationship, putting the U.S. in the highest diplomatic category Vietnam has, one it reserves for only a few other nations, like China.
5: This is a new elevated status that will be a force for prosperity and security one of the most consequential regions in the world.
27: The Vietnamese celebrated this new partnership by inviting Biden to a state lunch complete with Hanoian beef noodle soup and made a toast to Biden's health. This new partnership seeks to improve economic cooperation and in particular boost semiconductor manufacturing. At one of his last stops on the trip, Biden met with tech CEOs and business leaders in Hanoi and spoke about these investments.
5: It's about creating a free and open Indo-Pacific for all people.
27: For all people. A free and open Indo-Pacific is kind of code language about China, without specifically mentioning China by name. This Vietnam overture is part of a pattern. Biden has strengthened the alliance with the Philippines. He plans to share nuclear submarine technology with Australia, and he recently expanded security cooperation with Japan and South Korea. But in a press conference in Hanoi, Biden insisted he is not trying to isolate China.
5: I don't want to contain China. I just want to make sure we have a relationship with China that is on the up and up, squared away. Everybody knows what it's all about.
27: More than once, he said he's not trying to hurt China. This comes at a time when China's economy is stalling. I, I want to see
5: China succeed economically, but I don't want to see it succeed by the rules.
27: Biden said he hopes to see China's leader, Xi Jinping, sooner rather than later. The two men have not met or spoken over the phone in 10 months. Asma Khalid, NPR News.
0: This is NPR News. And this is 90.9 WBUR. Thanks for joining us this evening. Bring a towel if you're heading to Fenway Park tonight and don't want a wet seat. Game time for the Sox and Yankees is in about 40 minutes. Could have showers off and on through the evening. Some heavy rains as well in the mid-60s. Tomorrow and Wednesday, cloudy with temperatures in the mid to upper 70s. This is WBUR.
21: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Fresh City Kitchen with a goal of delivering holiday catering everyone will keep talking about FreshCityKitchen.com.